Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the Big Wednesday Buckeye Talk podcast. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means, your Ohio State coverage team for Cleveland.com. We're going rapid fire Wednesday. Last Wednesday, we went deep on the Ohio State mini dynasty podcast. So now we're going to keep it light. We like to go deep. Then we like to keep it light. So we're going to run through, uh, again, amazing, amazing. I hadn't sent out the call for podcast questions for a while because we had so many good ones backlogged. It took us a couple weeks to work through what we had. Sent out the call. Uh, so many awesome questions. I picked 20. We have enough for another 20 question rapid fire easily of high level questions, mostly about Ohio State football, some dipping into, you know, caramel and hot fudge. Actually, I'm going to do this, guys. I'm going to try this. I sent this out on Twitter because I have the list of 20 questions with little designations. So I'm going to tease people this way, like PTI does this on ESPN. They give you like the thing on the side to tell you what's coming up. I'm going to see if people like this or not, but these are the little headlines I have for the 20 questions for this podcast, just to keep you interested. What is a regular dynasty? Other dynasty candidates. What if Harbaugh was undefeated versus OSU? Three-star current player who will be drafted. 2020 schedule decision. Caramel or hot fudge. Travion Henderson expectations. Running back transfers. Scholarship count slash transfers. Taraja Mitchell 2020 versus um, Baron Browning 2019. Dewan Jones, offensive tackle recruiting. More Devonta Smith. Michigan or Detroit Lions title. Kansas State boycott, better offensive line or defensive line experience? Will we be fans later? Do we hate teams scheduling FCS schools? Do we actually edit the podcast and our most embarrassing moments as a journalist? Those are the 20 topics. That's what we're heading into. We appreciate you guys being part of Buckeye Talk. But first, we have an addendum, an epilogue to last week's Dynasty podcast. We never actually said, as we talked about, the possibility of an Ohio State mini football dynasty, whether we thought they could do it. And if you didn't listen to last Wednesday's podcast, I would highly recommend it. It's two hours and 45 minutes of your life. It might take nine sittings to get through. But our parameters were, could Ohio State over a five-year period win two titles and be in the playoff two other times or win three titles? That's our definition of being a mini dynasty. 
Last week, we gave the three things that we think are most important for Ohio State trying to do that. But then we never in the end said whether we thought they could. So, Nathan, we'll start with you before we get to our rapid fire 20 questions. Do you think Ohio State over this next five year period could actually be a mini dynasty by our parameters? Wait, now are we saying could they do it or will they do it? Like, are we doing like a market down Monday? Are you so, predicting it'll happen? I, 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 we had said it's like you can describe your thoughts on it. You can okay. mark it down yes or no. Okay. You can give a percentage chance of them doing it. I think, I think yes or no is like, it's, this is almost too much to me for a market down Monday. Okay. It's yeah. so complex. Exactly. And I'm, I'm interested and the bar in both, is set it really, really, really yeah. high. I'm interested in your answers sort of beyond yes or no. So even if it's yes or no, then you have to explain it. So okay. however you want to do it. Now that I've filibustered part of the, uh, the f- five minutes that we allow for each question. Um, I'm going to say I think Ohio State will win a national championship in the next five years. I think that I, I would predict that. I think they will be an annual playoff contender and go to the playoffs probably – I don't know if they'll get there next season. I could see a dip, but I think I could see four and five years. I, but I'm not going to go so far as to say they will reach our dynasty um, threshold. But I think they're going to be right there on the cusp if they don't. I mean, they're, they're going to be in that mix where people look back and say that was kind of a hell of a five-year run that they did. Um, maybe even get to another championship game. I'm not even and, – and, and this, this has almost as much to do with the rest of the college football landscape as it does with Ohio State. I think Ohio State is going to have national championship caliber teams in that, in that stretch just as they did last season. But you've got to give some credit to the fact that there are these other – kind of behemoth programs out there that Ohio State is trying to, even if they get up onto that level, you do still have to then regularly beat Alabama slash Clemson slash what LSU did last year. It's just a very, very, very difficult thing to do. I know Clemson, Alabama maybe made it look a little easy recently. It's very hard. And so I'm going to say can do it, but won't quite get there because it's just such a high plateau to achieve. Good answer. Steven. I'm gonna. Uh, it's. I. I think it's possible. Um, if they recruit the way that they're recruiting right now, and not necessarily the, you know, competing with being the highest rated class of all time, but the the idea of every time at this spring summer situation, they they fill up their class towards 18, 19 guys, and they they've clearly gotten the bulk of their ta- talents. So they can use the fall to kind of focus on any four or five star guys that are out there that are kind of left that they can pick and choose from. And so it allows them to get a head start on the next class every year. They did that in 20 and it head start with 21 and you're seeing it in 21 and leading into 2022. So it starts there. Um, they're going to be a playoff contending team every single season. So then it's just, once you're in the playoff, it just kind of comes down to luck. And so I think it's possible. I'm, I'm not going to mark it down and say, yes, it's 100% going to happen, but I would give it maybe a 55% chance. Of happening, fifty-five percent chance of them meeting our mini dynasty threshold. Yeah, just because once you're in, obviously it takes a little bit of luck, but I do think that they'll, they'll, they'll at least be in the position to make it happen. So again, and I think we referenced this last week. If we're talking about the the coming five-year period, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, and we look at the last five-year period, the five years since they won the title. Since in 2014 they won it, and you thought maybe they were starting a mini dynasty, 
15, 16, 17, 18, 19, they didn't win a playoff game. They made it twice. They were really good every year, but they only made the playoff twice, and they didn't win a playoff game. So to now say they're going to have to win at least four playoff games, and actually to be our threshold, two titles means four playoff wins, and then you've got to be close and like just getting blown out in the semifinal isn't quite it. You probably have to win five or six playoff games in a five-year period to meet our threshold. As good as they've been the last five years, they won zero. So I think it is possible, or we wouldn't have done a two-hour and 48-minute podcast on it. I'm going to put a 25% chance on it, and this is why. I'm basically dividing it up into thirds and then slightly lessening the third of winning it. I think there's a third, one-third chance that they're just not quite good enough, and they're just like not – they are good, but they're really just not in that mix at all. They're not good enough to do that every year to be a title – real serious title contender every year that they just, and even, I don't know that, but maybe they take like a 10% step back from what they've been the last five years. And they're still really good, but it's just not really even realistic to think about that. The recruiting just falls off a little bit. Maybe they have like a really important, like quarterback thing maybe doesn't work out. Maybe they lose Larry Johnson and retires and they have a really hard time replacing him. Just something like that that pulls them back slightly. I think there's a one-third chance of that. I think there's a one-third chance of they're absolutely good enough to do it, and it just doesn't happen, which I think is what would apply to the previous five years. You just lose maybe a game or two or three, and you would say in the, in the previous five-year period, they lost three games they couldn't lose, and it screwed them. And if you change the results of Michigan State in 15, Iowa in 17, and Purdue in 18, you have a completely different five-year stretch, but it doesn't take much to knock you off course because in most, in mostly every other fashion, they were good enough. The 18 defense, you know, not really good enough, but otherwise, I mean, they're right there. They absolutely have enough talent in 19 and in 15. They have enough talent to win a title and they don't win a playoff game. So I think there's a one third percent chance of that, that it's, it's all there and it just doesn't happen because it's hard. And then I think there's like a one third chance that they do it, but I'm going to slightly lessen the one-third again just because it's hard. So my answer is not 33% of meeting our mini-dynasty parameters. It's 25%, which is just a nod to, my gosh, maybe you win one title and then you lose a second title to Alabama in overtime, you know? Or maybe you, you win two titles and then, like, you barely get edged out for a playoff spot one year, even, you know, like it's not your fault, but you just don't make it. You know what I mean? Like, I just think, you know, I just think it's hard. So that's my way of analyzing it. And as, as interesting as, as last year's, as last week's podcast was, I do think it's fair to sort of leave that topic with the idea of it is hard, man, it's hard, man, the bar is high and one or two losses can keep you from what you otherwise could be, and that would be a mini dynasty. All right, let's get into the 20 questions now, and we're actually going to start with dynasty questions. Referencing back to last week's podcast, and I do have the stopwatch, five minutes each, each topic, not five minutes each on each topic. From the 567, for the dynasty discussion, why did you use the term mini dynasty? Two titles in five years doesn't sound mini to me. What would be a regular or even mega dynasty? Nathan, this is semantics. 
what's your definition? How do you answer this question for the texter? Well, I, I guess I would say so. So three and five years is just a dynasty. That's a capital D dynasty. I think in any sport, you win three championships in a five-year span, you get to call that a dynasty. Um, and it's it's that may even be tougher at the college level. I, I'm not sure um, because. I, I don't know, but three and five years is, is a dynasty. I think it's where you start talking about the two and five years with, with two championship games or two playoffs, whatever the other thing that's, I guess maybe what is more of what I would call the mini dynasty, but I think it still qualifies. I think that's what we kind of came up with that um, dynasty doesn't mean you win a championship every year. I mean, that's obviously unrealistic, but if you're winning what's almost the equivalent of half in a five year span, and you're also right in position to win two others, that that is that has a dynastic feel to it. So uh, I guess if if that if he's looking for maybe just a better definition of what we're talking about, I guess that's what I'd say. But just getting getting even just the three and five years, I would not call that a mini dynasty. That that's just a dynasty. Stephen, how do you check in on this? Alabama's a dynasty. A dynasty, from, especially with college sports, because it's reliant on the head coach more than the players. While in the pros, it's almost the other way around. Uh, what Alabama has done the last ten years should be a dynasty. They've made the playoff all but one year, and that's because of some injuries and whatnot. But they've constantly been in the conversation for a national championship. They've won a few – they've won both BCS and college football playoff national championships within the same decade. It's all but within been with the same head coach. They had that run of number one recruiting classes. And I just, you can split it up if you want to, but at the end of the day, this 10-year run for Alabama has been a dynasty. Can I, can I say real quick, I, I think there, there's also – the, the concept where some of this is feel, right? It's a thing we talked about where um, I can't I can't describe it for you. I just know it when I see it. And that is also, I guess, a factor in here too, because I think if you're talking about like baseball, people from the 70s would call the Reds a dynasty and they would call the Yankees from the like late 90s, early 2000s a dynasty. I don't think anybody disputes that, but they might not say that about like the, the Giants who won three in five years because I don't know if it felt like they kind of took over the game for a stretch. So maybe that's the elusive thing that would that finally makes it a capital D dynasty is that there's a presence that 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 team that organization just stamps onto the sport for a, a semi extended period of time. Basically, you can't tell that time period without mentioning that team. And Alabama is a great example of that, right? Is, yeah, they are. When you think of the 2010s college football, you it starts with Alabama and everybody else falls in line. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and I think I think you can be a dynasty and a mini dynasty. I think you can be a mini dynasty without being a dynasty. And I actually think you can be a dynasty without ever having a mini dynasty. And this is yes. what I mean by that. Yes. I think when you look at – we discussed Florida State last week in sort of our dynasty discussion. I think the Bowden era at Florida State is a dynasty because they were competing like every year for like 15 years – they were in the mix to be the best team in college football, but they never had like the run of titles really to exactly fit our definition of a mini dynasty. I think we might have stretched it a little bit to get them in the mini dynasty, but dynasty, the Bowden era at Florida State, yes. Alabama, I think, has like two mini dynasties within their dynasty. Mm-hmm. So I think like mm-hmm. Ohio State, to me, dynasty in college football is longer. So I do think you have to do it for longer than five years, but I also think your peaks don't have to be quite as high. I think it's that you define an era. I think Nathan, you're exactly right. And I think Steven, the best example is Alabama football right now, 
But like, I don't think Clemson's quite there. It feels like Clemson's on the path to that, to like the Dabo dynasty at Clemson. But if whatever, if Dabo quit tomorrow and this vanished, I don't, they're not an all time real true dynasty to me. Yeah, 30 for 30. They're a little more of a flash in the pan. But like, as we talked about what Miami did when they had Jimmy Johnson, but then they kept it going after Jimmy Johnson left. And they continued it through Dennis Erickson and through Larry Coker. And it actually kind of started with Howard Schnellenberger. That whole long part, a decade and a half, that is a dynasty. And then again, there's many dynasties within it. So that's why I think to me that the term mini was a length. I just don't think five years is enough for a full dynasty. But there is obviously overlap in the definitions. And I think, you know, there could be a Ryan Day dynasty here. But I also don't think like Urban Meyer in the end, this was not like an Urban Meyer dynasty at Ohio State, not with one title. Now, they're like Ohio State's been a Big Ten dynasty for the last two decades. They are the defining team of the Big Ten since 2002, indisputably. So this is a, a, a long era of an Ohio State Big Ten dynasty. So to me, that's it's all semantics, but a lot of stuff in sports is semantics. And it's, you know, when we have discussions like this, that's why we try to set up parameters because you have to try to explain what you're talking about. But they're all good. Uh, this, another- is a, this is going to push us past five minutes, but I'm just like, when was the last time the Big Ten had a team that had even a mini dynasty? Well, I mean, and is t- that one of the th- go ahead? I don't think there's a. Uh, there's not one. Yeah. I mean, like Nebraska had one before they got yeah, in the Big Ten. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. So that doesn't count. Um, and that's almost a different era now too, where, so I, I just, it's maybe that, is that one of the elusive things that is maybe holding the big 10 back from, as people ask us many times, that respect level with the sec, do they need a team to step up and kind of have that kind of presence to elevate the whole. Are the, is the big 10 the only conference that doesn't have a team who's had a mini dynasty in it basically. Yeah. Cause you would look at, you would For, look I mean, at what, o- while. what Oklahoma did, mm-hmm. um, what, what Notre Dame has done for a stretch, certainly what Alabama has done now. Um, there are some, there are some others in there. Eh, sounds like another podcast. I mean, Ohio state had one on a tee there in the late sixties, obviously, and then stubbed its toe and didn't finish right. it off. Um, all right. Number two from the six one four, the last pod was about whether you thought Ohio state could form a mini dynasty. What other teams excluding Bama or Clemson are also on the cusp of com- becoming a perennial power. So, I said on the podcast last week, I thought that whole theory and idea could only apply to Ohio State because Bama and Clemson are already there and nobody else is on the cusp of it the way Ohio State is. Or is there? Who else would be? And, and if the answer is nobody, uh, you know, that's what I sort of laid out last year that there is none. But so let's at least name a team. Who would be next? Who would be next up to say, yeah, I could see, even if they're not there right now by any parameter, could they become this in the next five years? Stephen, who do you tee up for that? Yeah, I went with Oklahoma if they can ever get over the hump. They've been in the playoff the last three seasons and four of the six years they've been, been in the playoff, but they just keep losing in the semifinal round. If they can ever get over the, ever get over the hump, I think they're, the, I mean, maybe the best, outside of the ACC, of course, right now, the the conferences who consistently get in, the Big 12 is probably the next easiest to get in out of just because, like I said, they've been in four out of the last six years. So that's a Big 12 team getting in for the last six years. So they're getting in. If they can never get over the hump 
and win one or win win one, they can start in the direction of being in the dynasty, and that leaves them open to maybe they can get the two and five years that they need or the three the three championships that they would need. Yeah, Oklahoma already is a perennial power. That was the terminology they used. I, I would call Oklahoma a perennial power. I know but, that we rag on them for the call defensive them that stuff. If they yeah, don't have I mean, a title, they don't have a title in the modern era. I guess well, it depends on how you define power. I mean, you get to the playoffs almost every year, and there's only four teams to go to the playoffs. You're a perennial power in college football. I think that all, all sports have teams that are really good, but you know, you know they're probably not going to win championship. The NBA is the Rockets, and you've seen the NFL teams. And I think Oklahoma's that team. They just, you know, they're always going to be there, but they're not. Nec- I don't necessarily consider them a power. I just think they're the team that's always there, always good enough to get in, but not necessarily good enough to actually do anything in that. I do think, I think for the, again, we don't want to get bogged down by words, but I think for just for, to discuss this, however the person phrased it, let's discuss it this way. Let's call it that Alabama Clemson tier, right? The Alabama and Clemson, as we always talk about, there's these many top teams, but Alabama and Clemson, because they've won multiple titles, are, are a step above everybody else. We talked about Ohio State getting to that level. So let's define it as who, who would be the next most likely team to have a chance to get to that level, to the current Alabama-Clemson level. And, yeah, I mean, I think, Nathan, to your point, but you certainly, depending on your definition, could already call Oklahoma perennial power. But let's Let's make our definition for this be the Alabama-Clemson level. So Stevens' answer is Oklahoma. Again, maybe the answer is none, but so maybe your answer is none, Nathan. But if it is none, then who who is next beyond the none? Well, if we're, if we're talking about that standard of uh, that we said before for many dynasty, there, there's already a team out there that's done the hardest part of getting that, which is winning the first championship. That's LSU. They've got one national championship now in their pocket at the start of a five-year run, potentially. So now, depending on how they build off of that, can they turn what they did last season into a, a big recruiting hit over these next couple years and build back up? So maybe in maybe two years from now, we're talking about them being right back in championship contention, or maybe they turn around as quickly as this year and stay in playoff contention. I don't know. But that that's the team I would vote for, the team that's already won the championship and also has some things in place. It isn't that long ago that they've, it's not like they came completely out of nowhere as far as being on the national uh, landscape. It wasn't that far in the past that they've had other championship contention teams. They're in the kind of conference where you're going to, um, if you have a good team, um, you can sometimes even absorb a loss and still get in the playoff, that sort of thing. So uh, that's the team I would vote for. So my vote, I think, would be for Georgia. And part of the the idea, Nathan, is I don't know if it – I mean, to me, it's a little harder for LSU because they're in Alabama's division. And so – you have to get past them every year. As much as we said, like Clemson and Alabama can sort of exist in the same universe as co-mini dynasties, LSU and Alabama can't exist that way at the same time, by definition, right? I mean, I don't, unless they're somehow getting two teams from the same division in the playoff every year, um, they would have to knock Alabama to the side to get that done. Doesn't mean it can't happen, and I don't think it's a bad choice. I just think it's a wrinkle, and I think it's a wrinkle for Georgia, but at least they're in the opposite division. Right. But they're still going to have to beat Alabama head to head and you have to beat them in the playoff. But like to even get in the playoff, to start getting close to these parameters, you've got to get around Alabama in your conference. So I think Georgia has the recruiting in place. I think maybe if Georgia would have picked Justin Fields as their quarterback, they might be there right now. I don't know. I mean, if you just put Justin Fields back on Georgia, does Georgia just steal Ohio State season from last year? I don't know. Maybe. 
as much as we talk about all these things in place for Ohio State, the quarterback brings it all together. But I think the other team I would add to that, like when we, to, to look back and say, five years from now, at the end of the 2024 season, what was the right answer to this question? I think it could be USC if they pull their heads out. Uh, it feels, yeah, that was number two on my list. Yeah. They, it feels like they're tr- they've actually figured out how to maybe recruit, that Clay Helton might have figured that out. And if he doesn't figure it out, this is his last year. So I think you could flip it really quickly there. They have had some quarterbacks there. They're getting some quarterbacks. Um, they're always going to be situated just in a, in a talent area, in a place that kids want to go play. So I think they're not that now, but I could see USC like turning it around quickly enough that five years from now they would be in contention to be that answer. So I guess I'd say Georgia barely, but then I'm my own wrinkle of, well, Bama's right there. It's wide open. In the Pac-12, it's wide open for a team to assume that mantle. And as much as Oregon might be coming on, I still would put my money on USC to be that team. All right, we're getting off the dynasty talk. And on to Jim Harbaugh. From the 419, what would Ohio State and Michigan's programs currently look like if Jim Harbaugh was undefeated against Ohio State? So I think this is a very interesting question because it pinned you down on a couple things because you could take it as, well, being undefeated against Ohio State, is that just that Michigan is a better program than Ohio State? They have better players every year. They are the better team. And as the better team, they're winning. Or is it kind of like things are kind of as they are now? Ohio State recruits better. Ohio State sends you know, more guys to the NFL draft. Ohio State maybe looks like the better team 11 weeks out of 12, but they just can't beat Michigan. Like Jim Harbaugh has their number. And maybe even like, you know, even like the 2016 season, let's say, let's say that like Ohio State, instead of losing to Penn State and making the playoff, they lost to Michigan and made the playoff, right? What if Ohio State is like really exactly who they are and they just either have bad luck they, they, there's a mental block. Harbaugh just has unbelievable game plans for Ohio State. What would the world be like in, instead of being winless against Ohio State if Jim Harbaugh was perfect? I don't know how you guys interpreted that question. I think you could take it many different ways. Steven, what would that world be like? Maybe uh, Michigan would clearly have some playoff appearances more than likely because if Ohio State's only problem was it couldn't beat Michigan and everything else the exact same is the exact same, that means Michigan's probably being the top five team every year by the time that game rolls around. So there's at least two playoff appearances. But outside, I, I maybe, and then the other thing is maybe Ohio State's recruiting success isn't as large as what what it what it has been. Yes, Urban Meyer is who he is, but if you're losing to Michigan every year, you know maybe some of these. Like national guys don't want to come here. Maybe those guys go to Michigan instead because they're already dominating the rivalry and it's a chance to win a national championship as well. So maybe that flips as well. So those are the, the two factors I looked at was playoff appearances for Michigan over Ohio State, but also any of these situations where like Zach Harrison was con- it came down to Ohio State, Michigan. Maybe that's the deciding factor that makes them go to Ann Arbor instead of staying home. What would the world be like, Nathan? I read this question as if all things being equal to what have happened these past five years, except Michigan wins the, the game every year, okay. which I thought was just the funnest way to maybe answer this question in some ways. Um, and if that's the case, then I, I disagree with Stevens Reed that that would mean Michigan's making a lot more playoff appearances because it's not like Michigan's getting undefeated 
going into week 12 every year and just can't beat Ohio State. Michigan, you know, Ohio State still goes out and beats Wisconsin head-to-head. Ohio State still goes out and beats Penn State head-to-head um, in almost every instance. Like, they're winning all the other big games, and Michigan is usually every single season losing at least one other big game that would that's already putting them uh, at risk of not making the playoff before they then lose to Ohio State if they haven't already had their second loss by the time that game rolls around every year. So I don't know that it changes a lot for Michigan. Um, it, it helps them from a prestige standpoint, and it puts them in, uh, I guess, a position to go to better bowls. They're not winning their bowl games either, though. So I don't know how many more times they would have gotten in a playoff. I look back, you know, in 2017 and 2019, um, they had four losses in 2017. They had three losses in 2019 in the conference. Um and they've had two conference losses in every other year, except 2018. They lost at Notre Dame and then lost to OSU. So that year they would have won the East, but then they'd only beaten Northwestern 20 to 17 when they played them in the regular season. So there's no guarantee. I don't think that they beat Northwestern on a neutral field for the big 10 championship. And maybe the big 10 has no playoff team that year. Um, I think, so it would be marginally better for Michigan. Maybe marginally is not the right word. It would obviously help them if they have a five game winning streak against Ohio state, but Ohio state also wouldn't be looked at in quite the same way nationally. If they were losing this game every year, they also wouldn't be ever going to the playoffs. Um, it would be really bad for Ohio State if they were, had a five-game losing streak against Michigan right now. I think the drop from where they actually are to where they theoretically would be if they were had lost five games in a row, where you're talking about a team with no um, playoff appearances, um, a, a team that's like completely out of that 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 sub tier of the top teams in, in the, in the, in all of college football. And, and they're relegated to some lower level of, of just conversation and esteem throughout college football. Uh, I think it would be a devastating thing for the program right now. You, you'd be talking about, we'd be talking about Ohio state football in a completely different context. Ohio state fans would be shell shocked zombies. If yes. this was the world. Yes. And it's like, we don't have to imagine this because Ohio state has already lived through this. It's called the John Cooper era. Right. So Ohio State, in 1995, they were the number two team in the country going into the Michigan game. They lose. 96, they're number two. They lose. 97, they're number four. They lose to number one, Michigan. Um, We know what this looks like. We know what it looks like when Ohio State is, like, really good, looks like they are an absolute legitimate national title contender and can't beat Michigan. It would prevent Ohio State from being a national team. They would be a regional team again because Michigan would be a roadblock. I think Michigan, and I interpreted it kind of the same way you did, Nathan. I think Michigan would not be as, would not succeed on the national level, although we're talking about Ohio State hasn't won playoff games. I think Michigan, just with their talent, would not be as prepared to try to even run with Alabama and Clemson as Ohio State was. I think, and I think in the end, Harbaugh being undefeated, it would be less about Harbaugh being awesome and more about Ohio State having this roadblock in front of them that it would be less about Michigan being dominant in that series. And it would be more about Ohio state, not being able to win being have Jim Harbaugh being their voodoo, you know, like to me as great, as great as Ohio state is, it's like what defines the current state of the Ohio state, Michigan rivalry right now. And again, this is all sports writer semantics, but is it more defined by Ohio state's winning? or by Michigan's losing. And I think perhaps more often than not in the rivalry, it's defined by the losing. It's defined by the losing program. And that 
Yeah. I, like, I what's know wrong how, with you that you can't win a game in this series? And I don't know the Michigan side of things, but it's like the Cooper era is not about Michigan dominated John Cooper. It was about John Cooper couldn't win the rivalry, right? And I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe the Trestle era, I, maybe I'm just looking at everything from the Ohio State perspective, but like Michigan feels like Urban Meyer was voodoo to them. They could not beat Urban Meyer. They could not beat Jim Trestle. Now they think they have a chance to beat Ryan Day. They can't beat Ryan Day. It would just be if, if Ohio State was recruiting at this level, winning at this level, and then losing to Michigan every year, Ohio State fans would feel cursed. They would feel like they are stuck in the Cooper era. They would question what is wrong with their lives because everything would feel so good. And that's almost worse. That's why the Cooper era, and again, I didn't cover the Cooper era, so I'm not an expert on it, but I think it's almost worse to be really good and then lose rather than just be like, well, they're better than us. Michigan losing right now, it's like they also can say, well, like Ohio State's better than we are. What are we supposed to do? If somehow Ohio State was like clearly the better team, but yet Michigan was winning the game, I think Ohio State fans would be like bonkers crazy and dreading the end of November every year. Michigan talk. I like Michigan talk. On the I will say I'm kind of to speak it. to speak to something that Steven said, though, I, I do think it is I think it's impossible to answer this question without also thinking about, well, OK, but after two or three wins in a row, yeah, that's what I'm does thinking. that does that change Michigan's trajectory a little bit? Does that then give them a recruiting advantage in on one or two guys over Ohio State? Maybe they end up with someone that they're going head to head with on Ohio State. And maybe those guys are what they're missing to then push up in those other games they're losing. And now they start having Ohio state like seasons. I can see that, but it's just as as the question was answered, I looked at it just, if you just flip those losses, I don't know. It doesn't like catapult Michigan, but it it, it pulls the rug out from under Ohio state. I didn't look, I just looked at it as they're just winning the rivalry every year, which means yeah, to that, I'm thinking after a couple of years of losing, things do start to flip in the Michigan's favor and not just every single thing that has happened is the exact same, except, Ohio State is losing to Michigan. But I don't but Michigan just doesn't recruit in the same style that Ohio State does. It's not like Michigan is out competing for top 100 national kids and they're constantly trying and just falling short. No, they're not, but I think but what but maybe the success against Ohio State would would help them put help push them in that direction to be able to do so. But they still they but they'd have to do something next because still beating Ohio State is a regional thing. Right? Like you can't – if you're going to recruit a kid in Texas and you tell him, look, we're 5-0 and against Ohio State, I think he needs something more because he doesn't care about the rivalry. I think Michigan would have to be doing something else, whether they drop – whether they get a title in there somewhere, whether they are just having a, an NFL pipeline. I don't think to recruit nationally and sort of turn winning the rivalry into something that helps you in recruiting, I think you have to recruit in a different way than Michigan does right now. So I, I don't know. And maybe, the, okay, maybe beating Ohio State, they would go ahead and do that. I think Michigan State, when they had some success, opened it up in recruiting a little bit more. But, I, like, losing to Ohio State is not what, like, is holding Michigan back in recruiting right now, right? I just don't think they go about it. I don't think the structure is quite the same the way Ohio State does it. I just don't think their recruiting machine operates quite at Ohio State's level regardless of who's winning on the last Saturday in November. All right, 
three-star question from the 443. Who is the three-star recruit you feel most confident will get drafted on the current roster? Maybe a better question is to include two or three of them if you include Thayer Munford. Again, from the 443, I'm thinking we might all have the same answer on this. Steven, you first. I mean, yeah, it's Chris Olave. He was 399. As Ryan Day wasn't even going out there to see him. He was going out there to see a quarterback. It just so happened to see the kid, and now he's the best receiver on Ohio State's team. He was 399 in his class, number 68 wide receiver, three-star kid in 2018 class. It's That's an easy answer. Yeah, I think Olave is more of a lock for me than Munford is even at this point, probably. Um, though I think they'll both get drafted. And the third guy I put on the list that I think it could be interesting is Dewan Jones. He has a ways to come, and we have right. a Dewan Jones question coming up later in the podcast. But they're also the other thing that, as I was researching this, um, and this is going to sound like such a um, an aw shucks moment. There are hardly any three stars on this roster. It's insane. Yeah. It's just four star and five star recruits, and yeah. some walk ons. Yeah, I mean, it's like unless you want to go to like some of these, you know, some of these three star offensive linemen in last year's recruiting class. If they well, and and Hobiel and Chrisman and guys like that, but I mean. Yeah, but how do you – three stars are like gyms. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing we've talked about. I mean, again, we've talked about many times, and everybody knows this. Um, You know, like Luke Fickle was a good guy at bringing in some of those guys. You know, Pat Elfline's one of those guys, right? And that you want to make room – you know, Darren Darren Lee's one of those guys. And so you look for that. Who's the – like the low – Davon Hamilton's one of those guys. The lower-ranked Ohio kid who maybe was a little bit of a late offer – um, and just like the more you recruit nationally, the more you have like top 100 kids sort of dying to be in your class, the fewer of those guys you have. And so the fewer contenders you have for this title. Um, but Dan again, Munford I mean, wasn't a three star. He was a four star. Just he was. I mean, his big deal was like, were they, was everything just going to kind of work out academically to get him in? He's a pretty he was a pretty skilled player. But I mean, you know. I don't know what what's Joe Royer going to look like in four years. Right. I mean, I don't, I mean, as a tight end out of Cincinnati, maybe, maybe he's a guy like that, but I mean, there's just not, you know, maybe Mayan Williams, who's kind of the forgotten guy in the running back room right now, because he was the late ad in last year's running back class. What if he, what if he blows everybody away? You know, I mean, it, it, it could happen. It's hard to tell now, but if you're looking for an answer, Chris Olave is such an unbelievable answer. He was the third lowest rated guy in his class. Blue Smith, who was like a tight end slash wide receiver recruit that everybody was excited about. Ohio kid ranked much higher than Chris Olave in that class. He is, you know, just didn't work out here and he went, he transferred to Cincinnati. He was, he was 150 spots higher than Chris Olave and Chris Olave might be a first round pick. So, on the list of if you start running through like the greatest success stories among lower rated guys in Ohio state recruiting history, depending on what Chris Olave does, he's going to be very high on that list. So Chris Olave, Chris Olave is the second, second lowest rated guy from that class on his roster. And he actually might be the best player in this class in his 2018 class right now. In a 2018 class that was, that was the number second two in the country. Yeah. And for all those higher rated guys, and again, Nathan Baird, feel free to jump in here. For all those higher rated guys, you know, if they don't get Chris Olave, yeah. you know, they would miss Chris Olave if there was yeah. no Chris Olave on this roster right now. This is your best case for stars don't matter, Nathan, ever. Again, stars don't matter was not about you don't have to go get highly ranked recruits. We just like to make you say it sometimes. <laughs> I know. From the 419. 
Question five. We're about two months out from the scheduled Bowling Green game. Realistically, when will Ohio State and the NCAA have to make a decision on the 2020 football schedule? Has Gene Smith talked about this any time lately? We have not talked to Gene for about a month. It was the last time we had a conference call. It's sort of like I think everybody's a little bit in vacation mode right now, both people who cover college football and people who work in college football. They have to – you have to take a break at some point. Um, So I'm not expecting any, like – firm proclamations or a hard and fast answer to this from the Ohio state side of things anytime in you know, the next week or so. But Nathan, just from what Gene told us before, it's hard to put a firm finger on it, but what's your vibe on when they, when we might have a final call on either trying to go with the full 12 game schedule or pulling it back? You know, he said that he thought that they would have to have something by early July I know that's kind of vague, but I, I took that to mean, obviously, like within the first week to 10 days of July. Um, I, I've seen other people speculate, other ADs, maybe later into July. Uh, the thing you got to remember is they don't have to come up with a schedule. They have a schedule. The games are set. So it's just a matter of are you going to cancel games? And I don't know how much is logistically at stake that can't be that there's not some point at which you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube on any individual game. So I think that it, it wouldn't surprise me if it dragged later into July, just because I think they're going to want to take as long as possible to make the right decision. I, you know, I, I guess they would have, you're going to, in some cases have to schedule some charter flights and, and, and whatever, but, but really it's the games are set. They don't have to come up with anything. Now, if you start talking about, if you cancel all the non-conference games and you have to come up with a, a 10th game, the big 10 plays, but even that's not that complicated. You're doing it within the conference. You easily just match some people up. So I, I guess I'm, I'm not expecting it. I, I would be, I, I rise up right now. I'm expecting it probably to go farther into July than when Gene Smith last talked to us and said it might be early July. I just think that would be the more prudent decision. The, the complicating factor to me is that we are currently in uh, a spike in many right. parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I wonder if, you know, if you thought if, if things had been trending the way they were before, where we're, you know, we either have plateaued or, or maybe fingers crossed, you start seeing a slight decline. Um, Cause even, and again, you can say it's, I mean, it is a regional virus, but cases are going up in Ohio right now too. So it's not like it's only in the South and Southwest. To me, how much things have changed in the last 10 days would, to me, want to have them – maybe they want to hold off to say, okay, well, maybe if everybody locks it down a little tighter, two weeks from now, will the cases start going back down and will we be in a different place? Stephen, to me, the uncertainty and the fact that, you know, the trends are going the wrong way right now, to me, they'd want to wait it out as long as possible because – if you said right now are we playing our non-conference games, maybe you'd say no, but maybe we'll be in a different spot two or three weeks from now. Yeah, especially now that players are on campus and being tested, and obviously some results are coming back, but some players are testing back positive and whatnot. You know, it's I don't want to say overreaction is the word, but you don't want to make any type of overreaction in either direction, whether it's we want to go full steam ahead with the season or we want to start canceling games. So if you can get through this first month, where most of these players are in more of a as more of a controlled environment as possible, and see how things kind of you know go out throughout this month, and maybe you come back that first week of August with more information than you than you had before these players were back on campus, you can make a better and more sound decision. 
I think Gene is very upfront with a lot of this stuff. And I think if, if we had him on right now, I think he might say, well, you know, a month ago, I thought we'd need to know by early July, but things are so up in the air right now. We're going to try to wait it out and see what happens. And, and maybe we can wait until early August to make a decision. You know, I think that it's that kind of thing. And again, you know, every school has their own issues on this, but Ohio State specifically, their non-conference games are two MAC games. And the MAC will do what the Big Ten says. I mean, the MAC will hang. The MAC is like the AAA, AAA affiliate of the Big Ten, um, and that's not pejorative. I mean, I, I think that's a good thing for both for both conferences. They'll hang around and they'll be flexible. I think as much as the Big Ten wants to be flexible, I would imagine that Ohio State and Oregon have had are having conversations about if we don't play, then what? Because that's the complicating factor with like the Oregon thing is it's not just like. Nope, we're not playing. That's it. It's what does that mean for the 21 game? What's that mean for how we split up the money? Are we trying to schedule that Oregon trip? Are we squeezing that in sometime in the next three or four years? That's a much more complicated decision. And because of how complicated that is, I could even see where maybe that, and because of the geography, and we talked about this all in the Market Down Monday podcast, maybe that gets pulled earlier and a lot, the rest of the schedule you could wait on just sort of from an outside perspective, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And I also, I just don't know that it makes a big difference. Do we need to know if we don't know until August 10th that they're going to cancel the Bowling Green game, does that change a lot for people? I I just, I I think they're going to wait as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the inner workings of a college football program that we don't know all the ins and outs, but I do think at some point they're getting, they have to start figuring some stuff out with tickets and budgets and can we, can we plan on having some kind of money from this game or not? And then I do think, like you said, they don't have to do a whole new schedule, but I do think once you say we're not doing this, then you get to the next option stage of, well, what could we do instead? And do we want to try to add a 10th conference game? Do we want to ask the Mac if they want to play the big 10 even more this year? I do think that might not just be yes or no on some games. It might be, no, then what? And that's a more complicated discussion, which means you might have to get the no nailed down so then you can figure out the next what if. Uh, this is a big one. Number six, caramel or hot fudge on your Sunday? Stephen Means. I don't eat Sundays. God. <laughs> you eat grapes, right? Caramel. Yes. Caramel or hot fudge on your grapes. Okay, so there used to be a place a smooth running podcast, and you just drove it uh, hard left into a tree. It's still smooth running, just because I don't eat Sundays doesn't mean you guys have to. You yeah, know. just tell your tell your body that Stephen, you must start eating Sundays for the sake of the podcast. I did. Um, there used to be a place in Polaris called Marble Slab Slab um, a long time ago that did you know it's like what. Uh, what is that ice cream it's like place Cold called? Stone. It's like yeah, Cold like Cold. Stone. Thank you, like Cold Stone. Um, I would usually get sprinkles or I'd put gummy bears in it. But now, that's right. No, Stephen, I keep forgetting that Stephen. It's what I don't know. I mean, I guess they do have <laughs> hot fudge and caramel on the kids' menu at Applebee's, so that would be an option. But sprinkles is sprinkles <laughs> not the most Stephen means answer ever? Oh <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I'm gonna go hard sprinkles on that. Sprinkles on my grapes. Uh, Buckeye talk. Sprinkles on your grapes, Nathan. And Nathan, so now <laughs> Stephen's right. answer is fruit and sprinkles, and Nathan and I, our answers are both simultaneously. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a caramel guy over hot fudge. Well, let me ask this, then. The follow-up question is, do you call it caramel or caramel? I was going to ask that, yeah. Caramel. 
Because I go back and forth. My family makes fun of me because I'm, I'm comfortable with either caramel or caramel. I'm sure the New York Times has some, has some map of the country of what state you grew up in, whether you call it caramel or caramel. I don't know what it is for Ohio, but it's definitely better than hot fudge. The chocolate lobby has overrun desserts. And the chocolate industrial complex has convinced everybody that chocolate is the only way to go on this stuff. Chocolate's but not that good, honestly. Vanilla ice cream with caramel on it is, is a superior product. And to me, the McDonald's Sunday, and again, the ice cream machine's always broken. McDonald's Sunday, and then you get the little packet of nuts, and you sprinkle the nuts on yourself on top of your hot caramel Sunday. That's, that's some magic dollar, dollar six dessert menu stuff right there so um we are team caramel and team sprinkles here at buckeye talk no love for the hot fudge which i am perfectly okay with um all right quick break coming back travion henderson the 2021 five-star running back a couple questions on him down the line uh more recruiting questions our most embarrassing moments lots more ahead on this rapid fire buckeye talk from cleveland.com Back with question seven from the 614. 247 Sports called Trivion Henderson the most complete back in the last 10 years. He's been compared to Reggie Bush and Christian McCaffrey. His highlight tape is 10 minutes of him not being tackled. With that in mind, what are your expectations for him in 2021 and onward? We'll start with you, Stephen. I think the opportunity for him to be what J.K. Dobbins was as a freshman is on the table here. It's the same situation. He's coming into a room where there's clearly going to be a need for someone to step up and be the starter. And as a true freshman, he'll have that opportunity to do so. And, yeah, we've all seen the tape and see how ridiculous things can look. So him being a 1,000-yard back as a true freshman and guy who probably is going to come in here and win the job is not off the table. Nathan, that actually how- should be his expectation. Yeah, and I think it – I mean, you've talked to him. I think it is his expectation, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that he thinks he can do that and more. Nathan, where are you on trivia on Henderson? So our texter mentioned – um, Christian McCaffrey in his question. And I went back and looked to see what did Christian McCaffrey do as a freshman at Stanford. You guys know how many touches he had as a freshman at Stanford? 612. Touches. Offensive touches. 483. I, uh, nine. Nine. Yeah. Nine. Uh, 59. Yeah. He had 42 carries and 17 receptions as a freshman. And then his Sophomore year, he went for 2,000 yards and was just a behemoth. So, and this is going to lead into a question that you're about to ask. Um, I'm not sure that I see, I'm not convinced yet that Henderson is going to get some massive workload right away as a freshman. Not only do you have, not only do you have the Evan Pryor situation, but you've also got running backs already in this program that are capable. You don't so have I Trevion don't know, Henderson. You don't have – we don't have what we think Trevion Henderson is. You're right. They don't have that. But we also don't know that Trevion Henderson is going to be all of that from day one for sure yet. Uh, I would remind people that as, as good as he looks on film in, in a high school game, we haven't seen him um, pass protecting and picking up blitzes and things like that. We haven't seen him doing some of the other things that you expect a college-level running back to be able to do. I think he's going to be great. I'm not saying he's not going to be good. I just want to make sure that that people remember that guys don't always just step in right away. Even phenomenal football players like Christian McCaffrey. And you can go look at that Stanford roster. It wasn't like he had um, uh, Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas ahead of him 
and wasn't getting any carries. Actually, he did have a guy named Barry Sanders ahead of him. They did have someone named Barry Sanders on that roster. It's, 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 not, it's Barry Sanders' not, kid, right? It's yeah, Barry Sanders' not, kid. It's right, not, yeah, it's not, not the Barry Sanders you're talking about, right, but it is right. Barry Sanders. <laughs> I, I did not go into this conversation expecting to say Barry Sanders, and then after I did, I remembered, oh, wait, there was Barry Sanders there, <laughs> even with the same DNA. Um, so I just want – I have realistic expectations. But even that, I say, if, if a guy comes in if, – if for so 18, 18 carries a game at five and a half yards per carry is 1,200 yards in a regular season. And that wouldn't shock me at all. I think that'd be – I think that's a very realistic production you expect from him as a freshman. And then maybe really taking off after that. Wait, wait, wait. Did you I, just, like, pull the reins back on Travion Henderson and then say he's going to have 1,200 yards? No, no, no. I'm saying that that's, like, a ceiling. That's what I think would be, like, a ceiling. Oh, but oh you were talking about, like, you it, the way you were talking made it sound like you expected him to have, like, 350 yards. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that, like, we have to remember that this that they're not going to turn over a, a, a 25-30 carry situation to a freshman, especially when you've got Evan Pryor coming in at the same time, who's a highly ranked guy, and especially when you've got other running backs who are going to be veteran running backs at that time who might be more advanced than he is in some of the other finer aspects of the game. I think I think Trevor Henderson is going to be a great football player at Ohio State, but I don't think he's going to run for 16, 1,800 yards as a freshman, anything like okay. that. Okay, J.K. Dobbins came into a room that had a running back who was a Big Ten freshman a year in a 1,000-yard season. I'm not saying he's going to get the ball 25 times a game either. J.K. only got it 194 times that year, which is – about 14 carries a game. I'm saying that he can get, he can do what J.K. Dobbins did to that extent and have the same amount of 14, 15 carries a game and he can have 13 to 1400 yards and seven touchdowns. That's not out of the question yeah. for the guy who's considered the best running back in the country. That's what I'm pretending to is he can do exactly what J.K. Dobbins did. Right. Sure. And my answer wasn't countering your answer. I, to okay. make clear, I, I wasn't disagreeing with kind of what you were saying that I think okay. he could be in that, that low, that thousand yard com conversation as a freshman i think he could be the exception to the rule I, I think he could go bonkers and i think he has i think he could be like see now yeah you've thrown me off nathan because it's like i thought like there's no such thing as only a thousand yards as a freshman running back i mean like that would be great i don't yeah, know that like people in ohio said history have done it so so like if he does that that's really good like ezekiel elliott barely did anything as a true freshman here, and then went crazy like from the middle of his sophomore year on. I think he has two things here. I think he has an incredible skill set, and I think he is going to have opportunity. And like to your point of, so we've spent basically this entire offseason talking about how we think this running back room is average, and now you're talking about the idea of like Master Teague and Marcus Crowley and Steel Chambers and Mayan Williams like preventing Travion Henderson from maybe maxing out what he could be. Um, Mike Weber was just okay. I mean, Stephen, to your point that J.K. Dobbins came into a room that had Mike Weber. Mike Weber, they didn't give him the ball against Michigan, and they made Curtis Samuel yeah. play two positions because, like, they didn't think Mike Weber was the guy in a game like that at the end of that year. Mike Weber was – that was there. The opportunity was there for the taking. Plus, then Mike Weber wasn't quite healthy, and that helped J.K. Dobbins go nuts. And then they still didn't go – you know, J.K. had the huge first game, and he didn't have 30 carries every game. I think to I think opportunity he will have an opportunity I believe to establish himself as the number one running back as a true freshman. I think that opportunity will be out there. Does that mean 25 carries a game? No, I don't think it means 25 carries a game. But then I do think when you watch his skills and everything the texter said and everybody everything everybody else is saying and analyzing Travion Henderson, 
he seems like he might be as skilled as any running back that Ohio State has ever brought in here. So Ezekiel Elliott was unbelievable by the end of his sophomore year and in his junior year, but he didn't do much as a freshman. So I think Trevion Henderson could do like much more than Ezekiel Elliott as a freshman and then be sort of on that Ezekiel Elliott level as a sophomore and a junior. And Ezekiel Elliott was the number four pick in the draft. So that's a crazy thing to say about a kid in high school. But I just, I think he's rare. And I think Bijan Robinson would have been rare if they would have got him in this class. I mean, Bijan Robinson is putting out highlight films right now. He looks like a bodybuilder. So there are some guys like that. Um, but I think Travion Henderson is sort of on the top level of this. And I think your Evan Pryor point, of course, they have two really good backs in that class. I'm still curious how that works out. It just feels like from highlight films, Travion looks just sort of next level special. So as much as you don't want to overhype a high school kid, the heck with that. Let's overhype him. I think this kid has a chance to be as dynamic from the moment he gets on campus as any Ohio State running back that we've seen in modern history. And also, in a world where they're going to have a first-year starting quarterback who might be a true freshman, depending on how this goes, they might have a 2019 situation where they do, in these some of those big games, they do just rely heavily on the run game. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And maybe they just, I mean, not that there's ever a step back here at Ohio State, but, I mean, again, what if you just let Kyle McCord and Travion Henderson yeah. play, make their mistakes on, the on you know, learn as they go, maybe a loser game or two in 2021, and then, like, in 22 and 23, you have an unbelievable young quarterback, an unbelievable young running back, and you have real good shots at doing what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Number eight, is there any possibility that one or two running backs transfer out next year? The backfield will be crowded with two commits, possibly Steel Chambers and or Marcus Crowley, maybe even Master Teague. I feel someone isn't going to be happy with a lack of touches or even zero touches from the 509. We always say these are kids' lives. These are their careers. They only get one shot at this. We don't want to be flippant about, I think this kid is going to transfer, but it's not that they don't have people in their running back room. It's that they don't have five stars in their running back room. They actually do have a decent amount of people. And I agree with the premise of the question that I would imagine if Travion Henderson does what we just talked about in the last question, maybe he's going to do. I don't think there's going to be a bunch of older guys sitting around and waiting for their chance. Antonio Williams was a pretty highly rated running back here a couple years ago when they got him out of Wisconsin. They got him to flip from Wisconsin to Ohio State had did very little here and transferred to North Carolina. I don't know who, I don't know how, whenever older guys get passed by younger guys, they often think about leaving. I would imagine, yes, not all these running backs on the roster right now are going to stick around to be backups because I'm expecting Travion Henderson to come in and set the world on fire. Steven, where are you on that? We, I mean, we saw it with the wide receiver room, you know, where a guy left after they brought in top 100 guys who were going to pass him up, who were going to pass him up. And so, yeah, I do think that can happen here in the running back room where you get to a situation where Travion Henderson being a five-star guy, along with Evan Pryor being a top 100 guy, there are some upperclassmen who feel like they might get passed up here. So, yeah, that's always going to be on the table when you're recruiting like this. I'm not really interested in in speculating on, names and we, no. we do try to stay away from that obviously but I also agree with the premise of the question and I think it's one of the reasons why they had to go get two in this class because even if you take just one Trevion Henderson and now put him up at the top or near it to start the depth chart next season and push 
somebody else down who's been here for two or three years. I mean, that's just that's just the culture now. That's just the way college sports are. And especially if we're about to shift to a situation where the where someone can go to another program and, and be eligible immediately, I, I almost I, you guarantee somebody's going to leave. Like it's just it doesn't make it almost doesn't make sense not to. Right. At some point, it's probably in their best interest to do it if if they feel like there's another place where they're comfortable and can do what they want to do academically. Um, I, you'd have to do it. And you'd have to combine the the Trey, Ser- Trey Sermon coming in. Because this was, for a lot of these guys, this would have been their year to kind of cement themselves as, and, like, carve out a role, you know, with J.K. Dobbins gone and Travion and Evan Pryor not here. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe if Master Teague and Marcus Crowley were both 100% healthy, then maybe they wouldn't have gone and gotten Trey Sermon. Mm-hmm. You know, we have questions about the running back talent. Maybe they would have been okay with that, but certainly the injuries factored in to why they got Trey Sermon. Antonio Williams, the guy I referenced earlier, 2015 had six carries uh, at Ohio State, 2017, 57 carries for 290 yards as a backup, transfers to North Carolina, gets immediate eligibility. 2018 North Carolina, 91 carries for 504. 2019 at North Carolina, 48 carries for 322. That was a pretty – he was a decently not, – not a five-star recruit, but like a solid four-star recruit. Um, a, you know, then it just kind of didn't, real didn't really pop for him. But, listen, you don't get two top 100 recruits at the same position unless you have opportunity to sell. And they're going to play the best guy. And if, and if Master Teague or Marcus Crowley or Steel Chambers is better than Travion Henderson and Evan Pryor, they'll play. But the reason that Travion Henderson and Evan Pryor are both coming in the same class is because they think they have a chance to play. Ohio State sold opportunity. And opportunity is the guys in front of you aren't going to block you. They're not so good that they're going to block you. And so then if they don't block you, then often those guys look to leave. So I would expect, yes, I think it's possible you end up with two of the current running backs on the on the current roster wind up transferring just because I think Henderson and Pryor are going to come in and sort of take this thing over. From the 419, the ninth question, where is Ohio State at with the number of scholarships going into this year? Who could be the next person to transfer out before the start of the season? Again, we are not going to play name that possible transfer, but Nathan, I, I looked at the double check the scholarship chart. We keep that going. If you guys ever just want to sort of know the state of this, if you just Google Ohio State scholarship chart and Cleveland.com and make sure you Google the Cleveland.com part. Otherwise, they'll send you somewhere else. And we want you to come to our site. Ohio State scholarship chart, Cleveland.com. We've got it all right there by year, by position, spells everything out, total number of scholarships right now. Nathan, where are they? So as far as we know, they're still at 86 because we don't know the CJ Saunders situation. And we're counting CJ Saunders right now. Correct. Now, if CJ Saunders for some reason is not granted another year of eligibility, or if he is granted another year of eligibility, but Ohio state tells him we want you around. We just don't have a scholarship for you. Cause obviously he was formerly a walk on that gets him down to 85 and they don't need another transfer. Um, if they do bring him back as a scholarship player, then I guess things get complicated. And they're, they're additionally complicated by the fact that you didn't have a spring to maybe work out some of these things and let, give guys a better idea of exactly where they sit to where they could have been making that decision all this time. Now, we have seen with some other programs um, trickling in here and there, guys are still making that decision. But um, it, it's tough. I mean, COVID complicated this process a little bit, I think. So I do think one of the things is um... – 
you're still thinking about the guys that they might add in 2021 and like the more guys they add and then guys come off for future years and NFL guys and stuff like you have to work stuff out with the, with the recruiting class, but there's also like, okay, before that recruiting class, we're talking about for the fall. So again, they're one over right now for the fall with CJ Saunders. I do think it's fairly easy for it to be like CJ, you're welcome back. If somebody else leaves, you can be on scholarship. If nobody else leaves, we don't have a scholarship for you. And I don't know that when you're originally a walk-on, I mean, I don't, I don't think you owe that guy a scholarship for a sixth year as a former walk-on. So I think no. that very they're usually easy, awarded on a year by year basis. That yeah. very easily could be where they are with that. And you know, that just means if there's a late transfer, if somebody has like a career ending injury, if someone just decides to give up football, whatever, there's things that happen late sometimes. And often, and we try to be very aware of this and keep track of this. Um, sometimes, you know, you're one over and then like three months later, like you're three under because there's some unfortunate things that happen that you didn't see coming. Right. So I think that's a very solvable issue for right now that, that, that they're not going to they don't have to have another guy transfer because if nobody does, then I think maybe just CJ Saunders is not on scholarship, but Steven, I think the other part of this, and I just want to get into this briefly because we do have some other recruiting questions coming up as we've always talked about where they're going to get to with the numbers in the 2021 class. I think some other sites, some other podcasts have just always along, along the way thought they would get to more that they're going to end up with 25 guys in this class, whatever it is a little, tight they don't have a gazillion seniors they're going to lose some guys to the nfl but i feel like ryan day is very aware ryan day and mark pantoni i mean they know the scholarship count they don't just blow it off and i think that they are kind of right on it and i think when you look at the balance of guys coming in for 2021 and guys you expect to leave i think they're pretty right on it you know they're right in the right range it just still doesn't feel like to me that like that this 21 class is going to wind up at 25 guys because I just don't think they have the room for it. Yeah, I get that there's some needs still out there, like obviously adding a second tight end to his class and maybe replacing Devonta Smith with another cornerback. But, yeah, you're right. They are a lot more cognizant of the scholarship numbers that they do have. And so that's why we've always been around the, the idea that this kind of ends at 22. And we've you know, mapped that out a bunch of different times over the last few weeks here. but they have to be cognizant of that, and they always have been. So you can sit here and say, oh, yeah, there's 25 guys who are going to join the class. But that means there has to be 25 scholarships coming available. And that means you're maybe expecting some some of these 2018 guys to kind of really step up and turn themselves into high-level NFL draft picks, or you're expecting some of these guys to transfer after this season. And I think, like, right now, by my count, they have 18 seniors, and then they'd have four guys that I think are, like, almost certainly gone to the NFL, Justin Fields, Wyatt Davis, Sean Wade, and Josh Myers. That's 22. So that's 22 guys coming in. That's equal, right? Sometimes you go over expecting a couple transfers, but, you know, sometimes, like, maybe a guy doesn't go to the NFL that you thought was going to go to the NFL. So it's 10, and maybe you want to leave as much as they've worked the transfer portal. Maybe they want to leave a spot for a transfer portal guy that they want to have that option. So, you know, it's just a scholarship dance, but I think to Ohio state's credit, and I always try to ask them about this. And I think sometimes people think I ask about it too much. I, I think they do care about it. I don't think they just say, get every guy you can get. And if we have to sort of force a couple kids to transfer, that's how we'll manage the numbers. I think they do 
honestly try to proactively manage it and not recruit to a huge number that they can't handle on the roster. Number 10, do you think 2020 Taraja Mitchell will have more, less, or the same amount of meaningful playing time that 2019 Baron Browning had? Again, before we answer this question, I will refer to the handy-dandy 11 Warriors snap count chart. Last year, Baron Browning had 368 snaps, according to 11 Warriors. That was about half as many, eh, quite. Malik Harrison had 701, Pete Werner 593, Tough Borland 425. So Malik Harrison played all the time, Pete Werner played almost all the time, and then Baron Browning and Tough Borland kind of split those middle linebacker snaps, and then everybody else was way down. Steven, generally, Mitchell. So we know the baseline is 368 total snaps for Baron Browning, and most of those were important, and he did miss two games. So that's 368 with having two did-not plays. Where do you think Mitchell will fit in 2020 compared to Baron Browning? And again, the comparison here is Baron Browning and Tuff Borland were basically the co-middle linebackers last year. With Baron Browning being told he's moving outside for 2020, we are kind of assuming that Tuff Borland and Sharaja Mitchell will share middle linebacker snaps this year, Steven. Yeah, I think Taraja and Tuff will be the co-middle linebackers again, but I don't necessarily think it'll be in the same manner that it was with Baron Browning and Tuff, where Baron Browning was in those a lot of those third-down situations where he was, you know, rushing a quarterback. He was clearly on the field over Tuff Borland, and that's where he got most of his sacks from in those situations. So I think it'll just be more of a – those – Snaps that maybe just automatically would have gone to Baron Browning on third down situations might go to tough a little bit more as the older veteran here who's probably going to be a three-time captain. But for the most part, I think it'll be similar throughout the game where they're basically these snaps will be toughs and these snaps will be Taraja Mitchell's where they're kind of splitting us middle linebackers. I would like to interrupt to say that tough Borland is not playing on third down when it's a pa- <laughs> when it's a passing down. He's not, he's not in their nickel package. I mean, Baron Browning was rushing sometimes. Baron Browning also was part of the nickel package sometimes. So maybe that's where it changed. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe that's where it changed. Where neither, one, where neither one of them were on the field in the third down situation then. I mean, that's – so last year, you know, it was usually Malik Harrison and Baron Browning or Malik Harrison and Pete Warner uh, would be the two nickel linebackers. So um, it would be Pete Warner and Baron Browning and then – Neither t- tough or Taraj was on. That's what I. That's what I would expect, and so then it's just a matter of how things shake out, sort of on on first and second down, and on third and short. Nathan, where are you with Taraj and, and Tough? Yeah, and because of that, I don't think Taraj Mitchell's going to play as many snaps as Baron Browning did last season. I mean, down the stretch, even when he was splitting that role, he played more snaps than Borland overall in the last four games, and individually in three of the last four games. And then against Clemson, it was 34 Borland, 33 Browning. But the other three games, Browning played more snaps than Borland did. And I don't see that balance flipping in Mitchell's favor this season because of what we're talking about. I, I think I, I would expect Borland to be, to kind of have more of a presence there in that, in that share. I think there still will be a share. I just don't think it's going to be as significant a one as there was last year with Browning. We, we also just don't know yet that, Mitchell is the caliber of player that Browning was and will demand to get on the field the same way. Uh, I think it's not a bad assumption to make though. Right. Because again, it's like, I don't it know. Could, it could, it could be, but I mean, they've, we've, we've talked ad nauseum about Baron Browning and how I think they kind of misused him and they kind of didn't develop the way he should have. Um, if he had gotten different coaching during his career, um, 
We also talked a lot last year about I think they like tough Borland early in games to sort of help sniff out what's going on, make defensive calls, get a feel for what the defense is doing, and I think he'll still play that role. I'm not so sure that there's not a plan to limit tough Borland snaps at times just because he's had – he had a really serious injury, and he's, he's removed from that now. But I think maybe you don't want to overtax tough Borland's body and you want to get him through a season. And as much, and we've talked about this, and we know tough Borland is kind of like a trigger phrase for some listeners on this podcast. Like, I'm not so sure that Taraja Mitchell is like not a better football player than tough Borland. Now, not smarter, not more experienced, but like you just put him on the field and let him play. I think Taraja Mitchell might be quite good. And he's just been blocked. He's just been in a tough spot and he's just been blocked. And tough Borland is always going to play an important role for this defense. But I wouldn't be shocked if it's basically a split, but that Taraja Mitchell winds up playing more snaps than Tough Borland. Like, that would not surprise me at all. I might even pick it. So that, you know, maybe it's Mitchell plays 400 and Borland plays 350 or something like that. But I kind of am assuming that Taraja Mitchell's pretty good. And I think he's more similar to Tough Borland than Baron Browning is to Tough Borland. I think Taraja and Tough are, are alike in a lot of ways. And I think actually Taraja Mitchell is like super smart and super ready to call a defense and super ready to be a leader and probably would have been ready before this. But he's just a little bit blocked. But I think for him in year three, even more than Kayvon Pope or Dallas Gant, I think for Taraja Mitchell in year three, for him and for the program, it's time to get that guy on the field. And so I do think a split with tough that leans to Raja is, I guess, my prediction. And that could even be, you know, third quarter of the Penn State game in a, in a 21-17 game. And Penn State's coming out to try to drive to take the lead late in the third quarter. Taraja Mitchell's on the field. I think that's very, very possible. And I will say that I think it is a, a, a hugely – positive thing maybe even an important thing for the program if those three junior linebackers kind of force their way onto the field this season if they if they even if it's in limited roles if they just say we have to be out there we're good enough to be out there you know you guys you need to give us snaps and in real at real points of the game I think if they can force that because they're the guys who presumably are going to be counted on to anchor the whole thing next season Question number 11 from the 330. It concerns Dewan Jones. Seems like a personable guy who everyone likes, expected to redshirt, but didn't. A lot of people seem to think he's way in front of his expected track. Seems to me he was in on the punt block team and had one huge block against Northwestern last year. He's more of a uh, kick block guy, field goal, extra point block guy. Yeah. How comfortable would you be if Thayer Munford went down and he had to pass protect against a decent defense also, has he lost any more weight? I do not know exactly where Dewan Jones's weight is right now. Um, I'll take this to start because I still have Dewan Jones quotes in my recorder. I had an extensive conversation with Greg Studrawa at the Fiesta Bowl before this Fiesta Bowl about Dewan Jones. Um, he thinks Dewan Jones has first-round potential upside. And I think the fact that he did get on the punt block team, I don't think you want to overstate that. But he's a project. He's raw. He's a basketball player. He's gigantic. Um, but he's raw, but he came along enough. I think more, as the texter said, more than expected in year one, I still think he's in project mode. And so like, I wouldn't be, we were sort of talking before about like, you know, if the loser of the right tackle battle 
where where he becomes the swing tackle on both sides probably that if something would happen to Thayer Munford you would expect that they would figure something out that then your two tackles would be Paris Johnson and Nicholas Petit Frere to me Dewan Jones is on a path and I don't know when you're still that raw I don't know that it includes like basically starting in year two although he was legitimately on the depth chart last year that to me is maybe a bridge too far when you have Justin Fields and you're trying to win a national championship and maybe they'd go a different way with trying to have just somebody maybe less upside but a little more experienced out there although I'm not exactly sure who that would be I don't know if you can wrangle some other things around and maybe move some interior guys outside if you if it couldn't be Johnson or Petit Frere backing up Munford where else do you go I think he'll probably wind up on the the two deep, but if you had to start him for a couple games because maybe Thayer Munford was out for a month or something, I would still be a little nervous about that just because I think it was really such a project. But again, I think if he gets to his upside and I think he's doing everything right to get there, I think by year three, year four, year five in his program, this guy could be like really, really good. Um, I would just still be a little bit nervous about it in 2020. Nathan, where are you on Dewan Jones? I, I'm still, yeah, I look at him as a 2021 project still. Because, again, I think Paris Johnson is the primary guy who would get those left tackle snaps. Or I guess even supposedly, suppose Petit Frere, if something were to happen with Mumford. I still think there's there are guys on the depth chart ahead of Dewan Jones that they would go to to protect at that point. Um, but I think the big question for Jones is, and I also don't know where he sits in terms of his weight as we're sitting here on June 30th. Um, we haven't seen him in a while and hopefully we will get to before the start of the season, but assuming Paris Johnson becomes your left tackle next year, is Dewan Jones a right tackle in the big Ten? Yeah, I think it, it, it depends with Petit Frere and how everything works out. And, you know, again, when Thayer Munford moves on after this year, I think right now you would project that Paris Johnson and Petit Frere are the starting right tackles or the, are the two starting tackles in 21. Mm-hmm. But then I, by then I think Dewan Jones starts to enter that mix. But maybe like if you told me in 2022, Paris Johnson's the left tackle and Dewan Jones is the right tackle, like I think I'd buy that. I think I'd, I'd buy right. that quite possibly. Um, Steven, we're going to skip you on Dewan Jones just because we, we don't know. And the next one's about recruiting. Question 11, should we be worried? And this relates to the Dewan Jones question, I think. Should we be worried that Ohio State may not get an offensive tackle in the 2021 recruiting class? And the word that interests me there is worried. Steven, so I think the first question is, do you think they'll get one? And then if they don't, should fans be worried? I'm just, I'm going to lean more. No, they don't get one. I think the Tristan Lee thing is still up in the air and they've obviously started to recruit him hard um, in the last month here, especially after losing JC Latham. I don't think they should be worried if they don't get one in 2021 though, just because of how well they've recruited the offensive line, especially those tackle positions in the last two recruiting classes. You're pretty okay. If you know, you got interior guys in 2021 and then came back in 2022 and started adding tackles again, like they already have with Tegla Tishabola. I'm sorry. They've already started with an offensive tackle there. So I don't think you need to necessarily be worried about it because of the work that Coach Stutt has done in the last two recruiting classes and and building up that offensive line room. Because you know what your future is already. You know Paris Johnson's going to be your left tackle. And at worst, 
you know, Nicholas Petit Frere will be your starting right tackle next season, as we've already talked about with Dewan Jones being a, a more of a project guy. A lot of these 2020 guys are more project long term options who will, you know, by that point, we're talking they're in their third and fourth years in the program and will probably be on the field. Yeah, I, I think worried is not the word. And I think that's, I agree with why. Cause, and part of it is when you have, when you have a guy like Paris Johnson in 2020 and you have a guy like Tegra Tishabola in 2022. Those are like high-level guys that you feel like you can count on. And then the rest of this group, I almost count the, the, the sort of lower-ranked guys in 2020 that they took on the offensive line, Grant Teuton, Jacob uh, James, Josh Fryer, and Trey LaRue. I almost think you could count some of those as 2021 recruits because uh, a lot of them are going to redshirt. They're going to be projects. Not all four of them are going to work out, right? But if you get one or two, of those four that work out that become reliable guys and you have Paris Johnson, you have Dewan Jones, you still have, you know, petite Frere for a year or two. You've got Tishabola coming along. Um, I think a gap, if you don't get a guy in 21, I think you're okay. And then you just target like another really high level guy in 22 with Tishabola and you'll be okay. You'd have to get another one in 22. You'd want to come out of 22 with two tackles that you think are really good chance to be future starters at Ohio state. But I just think with the classes around them, I think worried would be the wrong word. Nathan, you have a take on that? Yeah. I, I very similarly, I was thinking like, is concern different than worry? And I'm not even sure how concerned I would be for the reasons that you put out there. You really are. Every time you bring in an offensive lineman in one class, they're essentially just kind of packed in ice and ready to be part of the next class a lot of times, right? It's rare that you get Paris Johnson or even Dewan Jones. It was kind of rare. People didn't expect him to play as a freshman. They thought that was an obvious red shirt, I think, for a lot of reasons. But they found a, a niche that he could fill that helped them. So that's really kind of the way that he played as a freshman, the reason he didn't redshirt. So um, it's not something I'm overly concerned about. I don't think Ohio State has to go find a tackle, some tackle, any tackle, especially because of where their scholarship balance is too. Do you really want that going there just from a depth standpoint when I think they're okay on depth and then possibly keeping you from getting another position that would still be of more utility to you with this class? And I think that's a good point. I don't think they're in a spot where they have to reach for a lower ranked guy. Mm-hmm. Tristan Lee is, is where is ranked where Steven? He is number 17 in the country. He's a five-star prospect. Okay, so like you go all in on that guy, and if it winds up you went for Latham, he's a five-star, didn't get him. Went for Tristan Lee, five-star, didn't get him. I'm sorry, number 11 in the country and number three offensive tackle in the country and the number two player in Virginia, which is behind Tony Grimes and in front of Trivion. So if you go 0 for 2 on those five-star tackles, I I don't think you have to – you just did take a bunch of project linemen in the previous class. I don't think you reach. I think you say, okay, we'll go get them next time. But I'd rather shoot high for these tackles and miss and then not settle. And Nathan, as you said, sort of have – end up taking up a spot when you have, I think, plenty of guys around them. Uh, Quick break. Back after the break, Devonta Smith has officially committed to Alabama. We'll talk about him a little bit more. The Ohio State decommit Ohio kid now committed to Alabama. Come back on Buckeye Talk. Question 13 from the 419. Can you go into more detail on Devonta Smith? How does an Ohio kid decommit and go to another big-time program? Was he pushed out or was it something else? Seems odd that a lower-ranked recruit leaves Ohio State for another powerhouse. So we had a, a, a hearty discussion about this. 
uh, on the Friday rapid fire. He had not committed to Alabama at that point, although everybody was kind of expecting it to happen. I got some pushback um, by some texters who were like, you know, I was like, I am not going to abide a discussion about how Ohio State doesn't have room for a kid, but Alabama does, or that it's somehow easier to play at Alabama. Um, I had one of my, somebody I respect who, who also covers Ohio State recruiting say it is easier to play at Alabama. And I said, let's have you on the podcast and discuss that. Like, I'm just not buying that. I was almost ready to go down the road and like do all the research of let's look at Ohio State's cornerbacks on their roster versus Alabama's cornerbacks on their roster. And I decided not to, cause it wasn't like I got 50 text responses. I got two. I'm going to stand on my point that I don't know what happened. He tweeted and said, I didn't get pushed out. I could have stayed. But to me, my final point is this. If Alabama sold him on the idea, and maybe I already said this, if Alabama sold him on the idea that it will be easier to get on the field at Alabama, than it would be at Ohio State, given the number of defensive back recruits in the 2021 Ohio State class, then that's just recruiting. That's just an effective pitch by Alabama. That Alabama, who is a dynasty, is now somehow pitching kids on, we're not as good as Ohio State, come play for us, because it's easier. I don't think that, it's not the we're not as good, it's just less bodies to think about. But there's more to life than the guys in your recruiting class. If that's their pitch, there's less bodies. Guess what? They're going to add two more corners in that class. They're crystal balled. Alabama has a top 75 corner, top 75 player who plays cornerback, crystal balled to Alabama. They're going to get him. He's going to wind up with the same number of highly ranked kids blocking him at Alabama than he would at Ohio State. If they're not in the class right now and Alabama is selling him on the idea of, look, we don't have as many guys, then again, that's a good recruiting pitch by Alabama. It's not like Ohio State has 20 cornerbacks on the roster and Alabama has 10. I just, I just, to me, if that's the pitch, it's just recruiting salesmanship. That's I can it. agree with that. No, I can agree with that. I think that's what, what it was. They just, they, Pitched a better sale, but also, as we've now found out, Sean Alexander, a former Alabama player, former NFL MVP, is also Devonta Smith's cousin, which is probably the connection they used to even open that door. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because Sean Alexander actually, like, tweeted it out um, after he made the commitment, you know, kind of, you know, hey, Alabama fans, welcome him into – welcome him into the family and whatnot. So just like Ohio State uses to go get some of these national guys in the Ohio connection, maybe Alabama used that family connection to open that door and go get Devonta Smith. The fact that, you know, hey, we had a, well, a, a, a former NFL MVP played at our school and is also just so happens to be your family member. I might go through the depth chart at cornerback for each school and just lay this out. I might, but only for texters. I'll text it out. Just because it's it's sticking in my craw a little bit. It's just I just I just don't understand the the rationalization. And again, it's not the end of the world. That is very interesting. And that you made the exact right point, Stephen. Ohio State does that stuff all the time. We should have said that. I guess we should have guessed that originally. Is there a secret MVP, connection? Yeah. Is there a secret MVP out there? Yeah, but no, you're right. We should have guessed that from the beginning that Ohio State's probably not the only you know big time program who uses outside connections in order to get national players. The secret thing that you didn't know that, that all of a sudden when you find it out, it makes everything else make sense. All right. 
We covered a lot of Devonta Smith, so Nathan, we're not going to ask you about that. We're going to move to number 14 from the 734. What will happen first? This is such a funny question. What will happen first, a University of Michigan National Championship or a Detroit Lions Super Bowl victory? Nathan Baird, you're obviously an expert on the Detroit Lions. They just signed Jonah Jackson. To me, it feels like Jonah Jackson gets them over the top. Um, they drafted Jonah Jackson. I think it's Jackson. actually Jay Sean Cornell that puts them over the they top. They are. Yeah, they're the two pieces. So Jonah Jackson, their third round pick, signed his not contract. Even Jeff, not even Jeff Okuda. Ah, I mean, I go Okuda's. No, that but I mean. Matter. Nobody cares about the number three pick in the draft. Well, I mean, I, everybody knows. I mean, once you get your left guard in the NFL, you're on your way to the Super Bowl. Um, Nathan, Lions or Wolverines? So the Wolverines are closer, I believe, in terms of just where their results are right now. I mean, the Lions are putrid. The Lions, I, I grew up a Bears fan, and it was fun having the Lions around. As much as, like, it was great to watch Barry Sanders play, it was great to watch Calvin Johnson play, but as a, as a franchise, you're, you're not dealing with much here. It's a, it's a team that will occasionally, you know, peek into that, like, 11-win uh, plateau and then immediately lose a wild card game and then they're irrelevant. Um, now, having said that though, the parody of the NFL, I think makes the answer the lions. I just think that the opportunity is for almost any NFL franchise. The opportunity is closer. It's not so much clustered around just a very, very small number of teams that can realistically win a national championship in, in college football. So I'm going to say the lions. Steven, you're a lions expert, right? Yeah, I am. I've actually been secretly covering them while doing this job for the last five years. Um, I'm going to also say the Lions, one, because of the parity, yes, but also more teams make the playoff than just four. And also the Lions, yes, I don't – that's a mess over there. But in the NFL, you can easily go from the Super Bowl to not making the playoff and not making the playoff to going to the Super Bowl. Or as the Giants have showed us, you can go 9-7 and seven and still win a Super Bowl. While with Michigan, they have to run into Ohio State every year, which they haven't beaten. But they also – it's a slim window for them to even get into the playoff. They have to basically be an undefeated team every year to get into the playoffs. To be in a position to even win a national championship, you have to already be you know, undefeated. While the Lions, like I said, they can go 8-8 and just happen to get into the playoffs that year because the division sucked and make, make a run in the postseason. Uh, I agree for all the same reasons. And I think there's like certainly a whatever percent chance that a year from now, the starting quarterback for the D Detroit lions is either Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. And then get back to me on what you think the answer to this question is, you know, Matthew Stafford has actually been pretty good. He's the number one overall pick at quarterback a decade ago. He's actually been pretty good and they haven't won squat with that guy. So it has to be more than that. But the point of it can change overnight for an NFL team and it's much harder for it to change overnight for a college team. And I, and I just think um, the Lions just had an ownership change. The owner like stepped aside and her daughter's taking over. Um, I think there are some things in place with the Lions that have prevented them from winning with the Ford ownership family, much like with Jimmy Haslam and the ownership of the Browns. Like I think the structures in place hold them back a little bit, but there's a change there. Maybe they'll get a change and this is not a Detroit Lions podcast, but I just think we think the road for Michigan is that difficult. It really is. I, like, I think just Michigan, the problem with Michigan is Michigan is so much better than the Lions right now, but you could see the Lions completely flipping the script, whereas 
what's the incremental step that Michigan's going to take to go from 10 and two in the big 10, losing to Ohio state to winning the big 10, beating Ohio state, making the playoff and winning a national championship. I think that smaller step is harder to make than the gigantic leap that the lions would have to make. But again, Justin Fields might be their quarterback in, tw- in 10 months. Question number 15. Why does Kansas State have a player boycott and there's not one at Ohio State? So if people have not been following this, um, and I haven't been following it super closely, but there was a student at Kansas State who tweeted uh, an attempted joke about George Floyd, and I won't repeat it. Um, the whole concept of, of thinking you're funny about that is is crazy to me. Um, but that joke uh, reasonably angered um, some players at Kansas State, and I don't actually know what the what the status of um, this this player boycott is right now. I know that um, they had said they will not play practice or meet until that student is dismissed, and I know that the Kansas State president had sent out a message on social media that they were going to look into this and this kind of thing. But the issue is not that. The issue is, is that is happening at Kansas State. Why isn't a similar thing happening at Ohio State? And to me, the idea is you get to the point of threatening a boycott when I think you feel like your voices aren't heard. When you feel like our only way to be heard is by, by threatening something like this, going to this extreme measure. And to me, and Stephen, you wrote about this, it just feels like Ohio State players feel like during this situation, their voices have been heard. And you're much better off having players feel that before there's an incident like this rather than after. So I think I don't know the inner workings of Kansas State's football program, but to me, it seems far less likely that Ohio State would face something like that, that you use the word boycott within the realm of players having a voice because it just, Ohio State's been more proactive in getting those voices out there throughout this thing. Steven, again, you wrote about that, about Ryan Day reading the room. What's your take? Yeah, it's that simple. Ryan Day, I mean, he's in the video that the Ohio State players put out about this exact issue. You know, not only is he supporting, you know, his players on the roster, but also, you know, the future, the 2021 guys, Evan Pryor is going through a similar situation at his high school, William Amos Hugh in North Carolina, where a student, a student had, you know, put out something like that and, and kind of, disrespectful in that regard and he's threatening to not play in his final his senior season because of that until things are handled the right way and he said that the coaching staff is at Ohio State has supported him 100 percent in this in this venture so you're right it, one I don't to, to our knowledge I don't think an Ohio State student has had an incident like this where the idea of a boycott would even come up but also Ohio State the football especially and even you could throw basketball in there as well they've been at maybe the forefront when it comes to college programs who are you know handling this the right way while we see teams like Kansas State and Iowa and Oklahoma State necessarily aren't doing that and I don't want to be Pollyanna about this and just think that the team we cover does everything right no but quite this right in this situation when they are you have to say it right now in comparison to others they are and I like I wish Ohio State was releasing their positive tests for COVID-19 which some schools are doing and Ohio State is not I think they should be doing that I think it's kind of silly to hide behind a privacy thing when we're not asking which players are positive. We're asking for numbers, which would inform the community and provide information at large 
for one of the few groups in Ohio that's doing asymptomatic testing. It would be a, it would be a service to the community for people to know that. So I wish they were doing that. But Nathan, does do you agree with the idea that it's not even about whether if something similar happened where an Ohio State student said something like that, do you believe that it would not go to a boycott threat from the football team because of the way they've handled this? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying about Ryan Day is is is, is accurate. And I think also just Gene Smith's presence in the athletic department as a whole has been a factor here. I mean, what he said to you on an earlier Buckeye talk, you know, about the way that um, this athletic department is committed to supporting the players and supporting their voice and, and giving them a voice, amplifying their voice, or at least letting them use it without, you know, feeling like you have to restrict it um, based on the, the, the delicacies of, of a certain part of your fan base or whatever. Um, so I, I think that this is probably a place I, I shouldn't speak. Well, me of all people shouldn't speak for the athletes um, in this regard, but just the vibe I've gotten from my short time here is that it's a place that I, I think feels some, it feels that level of respect from the top of the athletic program on down in that regard. Agree. Question 16 from the 614. Which situation is better? Clemson with basically a brand new offensive line. They are they lost four starters on the offensive line, everybody except Jackson Carmen. But a lot of known pieces on the defensive line, they returned every defensive line from last year's Fiesta Bowl. What's better, that or Ohio State with a lot of unknown pieces on the offensive line? It's not a lot of unknown pieces. They have three starters back, but I get it. Um, no, I'm sorry. With a lot of known pieces on the offensive line, but unknown defensive line because they lost Avon Hamilton and Chase Young and Jay Sean Cornell. So again, Clemson, new offensive line, experienced defensive line. Ohio State, experienced offensive line, new defensive line. I messed up the question originally. That's the idea. Where would you rather have the experience? That's from Kenny Stabler in the 614. Nathan, where would you rather have experienced players back? We know... Right. When I always used to do and you, you texted out to our subscribers um, on Tuesday that you're starting to try to get your AP ballot ready. And again, if you're a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315, Nathan will take you through some of this stuff as he's an AP voter. Um, it's a little little bonus for the tech subscribers. When I always tried to do my preseason AP ballot, I always looked at offensive line, defensive line and quarterback. How much experience do you have there? Those are my shorthand. But if you had to if you had to pick one. Offensive line or defensive line? Well, ironically, because the other day we asked this question and I picked quarterback and then defensive line and then offensive line as like the three most important position groups. So I had DL above OL, but I think in as the way that this is stated, I think I would say I would rather have Ohio State and the more experienced offensive line because it allows you to maximize what might be a special opportunity with a special quarterback. Whereas Clemson's offensive line situation could potentially hinder a special opportunity with a special quarterback. I think that's a very good distinction. And that is how the question is phrased. Uh, Steven, what's your answer here? I think part of this is just because obviously we know a lot more about Ohio State situation than the Clemson situation. I would rather have the offensive line over the defensive line. Um, one, because Ohio State's offensive line has two guys who might be All-Americans. And not saying that Clemson's defensive line doesn't, but I know for sure that there are two guys who might be first-team All-Americans, Hawaii Davis and Josh Myers. But also, I think 
with a defensive line, there's there might maybe this is a crazy thing to say, but there's a a better chance of somebody taking a step statistically, while with the offensive line, I think it does kind of you know, there has to be a level of continuity, but also most offensive linemen aren't ready to go their first year as a starter. Why Davis being the exception of that? Yeah, I think I agree both in this specific circumstance that I would rather have Ohio State's veteran offensive line than Clemson's veteran defensive line. And in general, I would lean offensive line uh, because I just feel like in this day and age, if your offensive line – and the, the implication is if your offensive line, if you have a bunch of new guys, maybe you'll stink. And then it's going to be hard to score. It's just going to be hard to score. And I'd rather have an offensive line I believe in and then try to win shootouts because my defensive line is learning its way and not getting after the quarterback – then have a great defensive line and feel like we cannot move the ball on offense because we can't run block and our quarterback is constantly under pressure. So I think in, I would rather just hope I'd win shootouts rather than trying to think I'm going to win with some great defense and an offense that can't move the ball. So I think, but again, specifically and generally, um, I would go the offensive line. But Nathan, you – and again, I think you nailed it, the, 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 the distinction of this specific question. But in general, you would, you would still take defensive line or are you open on that idea? I can't remember. How did we specifically talk about this in the last Well, the question? last – I'm trying to remember exactly how we When we did it, it – well, it was a position group podcast, right, that actually maybe hasn't gone out to the people yet? I can't remember. Yes, I think it was when we were doing the offensive line. Yes. Hey, so everything group, I just said. Position group podcasts are coming. Editor, we'll get previewing. to this much later. Editor, take out that part that previews a podcast that has not been released yet. No, no, no. It's a tease. It's a tease. It we'll is. get to it eventually. We are um, doing position group podcasts this week ahead because we're all going to be on rotating vacation in July and we don't want to miss any podcasts. And you guys have been expressing that you like it when the three of us are together. And so we're trying to make sure – that we have the three of us doing discussions. We did that linebacker position group podcast a month ago, and we have not done any more position group podcasts, but we are working through those, and those will begin dropping in as some of your daily podcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Friday in the next couple of weeks. So that is what Nathan is referencing, but continue. Yeah, I think I, I think I would still I would still put that if you can get an elite defensive line that that after if you've got the quarterback in place that that can be sometimes well maybe am I contradicting myself about what I just said I mean I think if you've got the elite quarterback in place and then you can balance it with the elite defensive line maybe that puts you at a better place than if you have elite quarterback elite offensive line but a bad defensive line or is it almost is it the opposite that if your quarterback stinks then you don't care if your offensive line stinks then you'd take the defensive line that, that, that could be a, a fair point to make, too. Yeah, but that can also mess up a run game as well. And also, if your defensive line stinks, you can maybe scheme around that with linebackers and defensive backs. I, you can't I mean, ask the Cleveland Browns if you know how much they were able to accomplish when their offensive line wasn't very good, even though they had all that talent on offense. But the Browns also started to suck last year after Miles Garrett got suspended. So. I mean, it's, again, it's, I think it's both, right? You need both to be good, and I don't know that there's a great answer, um, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. So I think that's why it's a good question from Kenny Stabler. Question 17 from the 937. As you have mentioned numerous times, I think people get sick of me talking about this because I think I'm trying to be some kind of Woodward, <laughs> Woodward and Bernstein guy, and I'm not. 
from the 937. You've mentioned numerous times that you don't consider yourself a fan, which makes sense as a journalist. My question for you, Doug, is in 2028, when you retired at Disney World, could you see yourself developing a certain level of fandom for a team you have covered in the past? And if so, which team do you think it would most likely be? Uh, Nathan and Steven can feel free to chime in on their feelings uh, about their fandom in retirement. I think my answer is no, but there's a caveat. So I think fandom usually is ingrained when you're young. So I don't know if I'm not a fan of a team now, I don't know that I'm going to become a fan of a team like in retirement. I'll just probably be the fan of the team that I was a fan of growing up when it gets ingrained in you. And I think most of you listening to this as Ohio State fans, it was probably ingrained in you early. Now, maybe not super early. Maybe it's because you went to college there. Maybe it's because you had a friend who went to college. But I don't know that are there many of you out there who like started liking Ohio State for the first time in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s? I would be surprised. I think probably if you're not a fan of a team by the time you're in your 20s, I don't, I don't know that you are. Now, maybe if you move somewhere new and it's the team in your city and you're new to that city and you want to root for the local team, which makes sense, maybe that. But I would say probably no, I'm not going to sit and be a fan of Ohio State because I'm no, lo I'm no longer going to know the players. And as I've said before, if there's anything, I, I, I sometimes feel good for the success of the people that you get to know covering a team. And then when I'm at Disney World, I'm not going to know them. And I'm not going to root – I don't think for the Ohio State laundry because that's not ingrained in me. But my caveat is I think I might feel good for you, person listening to this, because I might – I will not – I know for a fact when I'm 65, I am not going to flip on Ohio State and have a knot in my stomach about whether they win or not. I just know that's not going to be the case. I'm not going to feel that. But if they do win – I might say, oh, cool, because I'll feel good for you, the people that I've gotten to know covering this team, my tech subscribers, our listeners, the people who have been reading me for 15 years. And I know that will matter to you. And so that will matter to me, that I'm excited for the people that I've gotten to know who live and breathe and die with this team. So there's that. But the idea, because being a fan to me is like you have a knot in your stomach watching the team. And that the outcome of a game affects your life. It's I just it's just not going to be the case for me. I, I guarantee it. Uh, Steven, let's fast forward to your retirement because we're sick of talking about how you're a young, healthy 20-something. Do you think that you will be sitting in your retirement rooting for the Ohio State Buckeyes or rooting for some other team that you aren't necessarily a fan of right now? No, probably not. I wasn't the biggest Ohio State fan growing up, and I grew up in Columbus. I, I mean, I'll be interested in players – but I don't think I'm going to walk away from this and automatically become a Buckeye fan. Um, I would love to be able to say that when I retire, I'll just root for my alma mater in sports, but Kent State sucks at football. So I can't, you know, so no, I would just be interested in watching players like I do now. Nathan, you've covered, I mean, you covered Purdue for a while. I mean, you can maybe even answer part of this right now. Do you feel any affection or anything for, the Purdue programs that you covered either because you know some of the people there still, or because you came to have some attachment to them or how, how do you view old Nathan looking at this? I think I watched two and a half Purdue games last season, maybe. Um, and it just wasn't something that I thought I would, I thought I would watch more maybe 
just because um, I don't have as much work to do once basketball season starts, or at least the second half of it. Um, so I thought that that would just be something I would do more in my leisure time, and I didn't. And I think as the guys that I covered, whether that's coaches or players, cycle through a program, and it happens pretty quickly in terms of college sports, then I'm going to be, I think, even less inclined to watch. So I, it didn't happen for me with that particular um, I, with that particular example, I will say though that um, when you see someone maybe that you covered in college and they go off and do something in the pros, I, again, I don't think it's necessarily that I'm a f- uh, you, that you're a fan per se because you don't have that emotional attachment to whether they succeed or not, but you do kind of feel that familiarity. It is kind of it is you know when you meet other people, whatever you can say, oh yeah, hey, that guy you just mentioned, like I actually covered him in college. Here's what he was like, or I have a funny story about him, like that kind of thing is fun. But as far as like following them and, and becoming someone who like roots for them and like actually hopes that they win over other teams, I, I don't I don't see that. And again, just so people know, you mostly covered Purdue basketball before you came. Correct. Here. So when you said you watched Correct. two and a half Purdue games, you meant two and a half Purdue basketball games. Correct. I watched okay. even less Purdue football games <laughs> because oh, I was covering watching Ohio State games or rewatching Ohio State games and watching teams that I needed to follow for my AP ballot, which was not Purdue last season. Um, did you I and, will say, did you ahead. and Matt Painter, did you and Matt Painter, the Purdue basketball coach, like ever go to Chili's just for fun, just what? to hang out because you guys were buds? What? Well, we would have gone somewhere better than Chili's. Stop! But, but Why no. would you even say that? Why would you even say there's somewhere better than Chili's? As I continue to work on our chain restaurant bracket, which we'll get to here. Would, would um, you want a millionaire? I, I will say, Chili's? <laughs> I will say in because because I didn't grow up in Indiana, I grew up in Illinois, uh, grew up near Champaign, so I kind of followed Illinois sports growing up. Uh, but I, so I don't have a, didn't have a Purdue fandom or a Purdue connection before I started covering that team. I will say that they're one of those programs that like, I have, I made enough other friends living in that community who are Purdue fans and I've seen them kind of suffer a while and not even get to a final four and, and things like that. It'd be the same thing. Like if you, if you were covering Ohio state prior to, um, the trestle breakthrough winning a national championship, you would probably, if you were to move on, you would have some of those same friends and you would maybe feel some connection when that team finally broke through and won a championship. Like when I had friends after leaving Chicago, when I had friends, when the White Sox won the world series, I kind of felt some affinity for that because I was like, Oh, good for all my friends who finally get to experience this thing. I will say, I probably say feel this. the same thing. If Purdue makes a final four, or whatever, I'll be like, Oh, good for them. I'll say this. I don't care who wins these games, obviously. But as to being a guy who lives with a Michigan roommate, it is who has a Michigan roommate. It is kind of funny to watch him suffer once a year, and how upset he gets with it. And then me having to come and like now I kind of pick with him every time Ohio State has gotten the commits. Like, hey, Michigan's not on their, you know, they're not doing their job right now recruiting. You're so mean to your roommate. I feel like we should have your roommate on we podcast sometime. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, I will say, I think I am a fan of fans which is what we're talking about right now. And I feel like a lot of what I write about the Browns is coming from a perspective of being a fan of their fans and believing that too much coverage of the Browns has been so downtrodden that I, I only, I still say what I think is going to happen, but I try sometimes to express it in like, Hey fans, don't, just be depressed. Don't be afraid to embrace the opportunity here. Don't be afraid to think your team might be good. 
because I am a fan of Cleveland Browns fans finally having something to root for. So I don't care for me what happens to the Browns, but I care for the people that I write for what happens to the Browns. And so I think that maybe is, I think that's a fair thing. And I think that's a good thing, especially that's, that's maybe new in this day and age that I've embraced that more in the last five years than maybe in the, the first 20 years of my, my journalism career understanding. And again, the connection of this, the connection of this podcast is connection of tech subscriptions, understanding the idea of like, we're not just writing like to you, we're sort of writing for you and that I'm not going to root for the team, but I'm going to cover the team in a way that I'm rooting for the fans of that team. From the 330, question 18, do you agree that any FBS school that schedules any football game against non-FBS schools should be disqualified from the FBS playoffs for the season? FBS, we mean the Ohio State level, and then FCS, we mean like the Youngstown State level. A lot of SEC and ACC teams schedule games against FCS teams, while Big Ten, Pac-12, and Big 12 teams have discontinued this practice for the most part. For example, Alabama plays an FCS team every year the week before the Iron Bowl versus Auburn. In the interest of fairness and balancing schedules, only FBS schools should be on FBS schedules. Yay or nay, and why? From the 330. Nathan, this texture came in hot, and I liked it. Where are you on FCS scheduling? So correct me if I'm wrong, you, you'd have a better perspective on this. Wasn't there at one time, and there may be true now, a Big Ten rule that you could only play X number of FCS in so many years? Like you could play one every four years I or something that like that? that sounds right. I would, I'm okay. I don't like it. I don't like it. I think, and I kind of think like if you have an FCS team on your schedule – it should, like, should you even be considered for a playoff spot? Like, if you get to have a free FCS game and somebody else had to play any FBS team in that spot, why are you considered equal? I almost think it, but I also don't want to take away what is um, something that helps the FCS level. So I guess I would leave it open that you can do it X number of times in a in a cycle, um, but I also think that maybe it should mean that if you're going to do that competitively, maybe you should also have to once in the same span, you have to play a road game against another FBS, not a neutral, but an actual road game, something like that, something to balance it out. Like uh, the, the thing that you see programs like Alabama do where they'll play neutral sites instead of real road games. And then they'll play um, these, these walkover games, late in the season going into the Auburn game or whatever. Um, I mean, Alabama's proven how good it is. It's not like that's the only reason they're winning, but it certainly makes it squeamish or it's, it's, it's makes me queasy a little bit. I just feel like it's, it's taken the wimp way out. They wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Um, Right. Steven, how, how strong are you on, on FBS schools scheduling FCS schools? I love this idea. I don't, I don't care about the FCS. I don't think FBS schools like Alabama should be scheduling those types of schools. No, no. play teams in the FBS. Stop taking that. You don't need, there's plenty of teams that you can whoop on within the FBS. Ohio State has proven that in the way they whoop on max schools all the time, that you don't need to go to a whole nother subdivision that you know isn't even eligible for the things you're eligible in order to do that. No, I'm, I'm, I like this rule. So Ohio State played Youngstown State uh, a couple of years when Trestle was the head coach. Um, and that I think is the only time they've played an FCS team in my time and my 15 years around here. 
Um, I didn't think playing Youngstown State was really any different than playing a MAC team. So I, I don't know that there's much of a distinction between a decently good FCS team and a low-level MAC team. Listen, North Dakota State yeah. plays up and beats people, right? I mean, that's like Carson Wentz, Trey Lance, North Dakota State, who is, I guess, like the, maybe the best program in FCS right now. They play up and they they win. That's so the thing that I agree with is I, I think schedules should be uniform. I think there should be a rule about schedules that applies across all the power conferences. And whether – and I don't think, for instance, you should be able to play FCS schools like after October 15th. I don't think you should be able to do what Bama does with that week 11 FCS school before Auburn. I think that should be not allowed. I think – there should be a rule you can only play. You said, Nathan, if the Big Ten did that, a certain number of FCS schools over a certain period of time. But I also think there should be rule about, like, how many MAC teams you could play. And I think that everybody should play the same number of conference games. So I was on a Cleveland radio show this week, and they said, like, if you were in charge of college football, what's the one thing you would change? And I said, I'd make a commissioner. I'd make, I'd make a commissioner who would apply uniform rules across the board, and one of those main ones would be scheduling. So I think if they had a rule where – you play a 12-game schedule. Everybody plays nine conference games. Everybody has to play at least one other power conference team. And you can only play an FCS school once every four years. And then your other two non-conference games, you can't play them after November 1st or whatever, right? That you can't do what Bama does with that week 11 game. And you apply it across the board. It's not about disqualifying from the 3-3-0, right? That's not what you really mean. It's about having a rule. It's just a rule. And, like, you're not allowed to do anything otherwise. Then I guess, yeah, the threat is you are disqualified from the playoffs. But it's like, you know, it's just the way it works. I do think uniform scheduling would be good for college football, should be done. I don't know if it will be done, but I think during some of this pandemic stuff, as much as we've talked about, sometimes it's good to have sort of regional regulations and it gives you some flexibility. I also think there's a power vacuum here and that we could use a college football commissioner. We could use – that the college football playoff committee becomes the college football committee and they apply standards across everybody. And for the three, three Oh, what you're suggesting with this scheduling idea would be right at the top of the list of things that I think should be uniform. Question 19 short one from the two one Oh, there are some times in some podcasts when someone makes a mistake and you all joke about having to go back to edit and redo the segment. Are there times that this actually happens? If so, can you provide some examples or stories? So we've talked about this a little bit, Nathan, when you edit it, you took out some of the, the spaces, the gaps, but have you ever taken out like a discussion? How much editing do you do? There was when, one, one more time when you were gone, Stephen and I were, it was when we did the awards, and I mistakenly thought that the, which trophy was it? The, um, uh, the offensive line trophy. I thought it was for. Allen, yeah. I thought it was just centers and guards. I didn't. I thought it excluded tackles when we started yeah, having the conversation, yeah. and then I realized it didn't. So I, cha- I decided to change my answer. Yeah. So, um, there, but it was pretty brief. It was like ninety seconds, maybe, and we just said, "Okay, we'll just you go ahead and answer that again. We'll restart, and then we just cut that out." That it's that's pretty rare, though. And I think there was one other. There was a similar time. There's with a another time, answer. No, there's a time. I think I just completely just messed up, and so we just took a pause. And I restarted my point. Yes. So we, we, we did take occasion to do that. Just to just to provide a smoother, a cleaner listening experience Smooth, for, yes. for everyone out there. 
Yeah, I don't have time for that crap. I don't do that. I don't do that, as we've discussed. I don't. We like it raw. Buckeye talk. We like it raw. Like, I, I, it amazes me sometimes. I have a friend who's a NASCAR writer. He's one of the biggest NASCAR writers out there. He's super famous, if you like NASCAR. Uh, and he does a NASCAR podcast, and he talks to me about he spends hours editing it down. And then I think, you, I mean, you take out the ums, you take out the pauses, but I think you also just like shorten long discussions to make them a little more concise. If you got off on a tangent or whatever, man, if we, if we took out all the tangents and Buckeye talk, there'd be no um, Buckeye talk left. Yeah. So, but also we just don't have time to do it. I don't have time to spend, a, do a two hour podcast and then also edit it for two hours. I do think, and I, and if I remember the example, I guess I wouldn't say it because the whole point was we didn't say it. I think I did maybe one time on a podcast say something, and then I, after the fact, I was like, I don't know if I should have said that, and I took it out. But it doesn't happen very often for me, and the great thing about podcasts is they're better than radio. No offense to radio people, because you don't have to constantly interrupt yourself for breaks. Um, you can go longer. You're not beholden to time slots or anything, but also you're not hanging yourself out there to dry. If you do say something stupid, you do have a chance to go back and edit it. But I will tell you, it is not like we are in the habit of editing out our stupid stuff. It's not that we don't say it. It's that we just keep it in. But I think there's been at least once where I was like, that was a little iffy. I probably shouldn't have said that. But I also think I joked about porn on the last podcast, and I kept it in. So, you know, whatever. Very little editing. And that thing I do when I yell to the fake editor off to the side is just making fun of our lack of uh, professionalism. The last podcast I was a part of, we they the, at one point that was happening. Someone's going in and taking out all the ums and coughs and pauses and stops and starts and stuff like that. But it was a third person. Like we had a third guy who was kind of the host, and then me and the other beat writer were there talking too. But he handled all of the technical stuff. So if there was a third person going in and doing it, it would probably sound even better this week. But we're doing so many of these and turning them around so quickly that you guys are getting them just more raw than – what what another podcast might do correct all right last question number 20 <coughs> don't, um, don't you dare cut that out yeah Let's you have see. to keep all that up. the uh okay um all right what's the one here um uh speaking of editing <laughs> i'm doing a bit guys i'm doing a bit from the 937 <laughs> Hey, fellas, Josh here. I want to hear your most embarrassing moment on the job, like you accidentally spilled coffee on yourself when Urban walked by or something, or you tripped walking into a press conference and everyone saw that. We all have those cringy moments that will sneak into our thoughts as we try to fall asleep. Let the, loyalty, the loyalists of Buckeye Talk know your embarrassing mistakes. Cheers from Josh. Uh, I will say Jerry Emig fell down the steps coming into a news conference one time when Urban was standing at the podium, and there's a little – uh, door, side door that you come into the Ohio State team room and Jerry, our wonderful sports information director at Ohio State, just came in and just like completely fell down four steps. And Urban said something that was kind of like joking and it wasn't like, are you okay? Um, so things like that <laughs> it, do happen. And Jerry popped up and, you know, Jerry's in his whatever he's he is. He's a pro. Yeah. He's older than me, but Jerry is fit as a fiddle. So he was perfectly fine. I would have broken three bones if I had done what Jerry Emig did that day. Um, 
I have an answer to this. It's not from the Ohio State beat, but I also might come up with other things in my head. Steven, you're the youngest. You've been doing this the shortest amount of time, and you seem like the least embarrassing among the three of us. Do you have an embarrassing moment? I don't have one um, unless we want to include the Fiesta Bowl drink fiasco that that was. But, no, I don't have any embarrassing moments. I'm not. What is the Fiesta Bowl drink fiasco? That wasn't even your moment. That wasn't, it wasn't. That doesn't that was, count. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really count. Um, somebody poured you a lot of alcohol. That wasn't your fault. Uh, no, it wasn't a lot of alcohol. She basically just gave me the – poured the entire bottle and then gave me this small thing of Coke as if that made any type of sense. But, no, I don't have any actual embarrassing moments. I'm, I don't embarrass myself often. Famous last words. That's, that's debatable. <laughs> you have, you're young. You're young. You have time. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, of all the things that I would never want to say publicly, that is just asking for yeah, no, the, gonna, proverbial, the proverbial gonna, anvil to fall on my head. As I'm going to watch myself from here on out. All right, Nathan, how about you? Um, well, there was a time last season where I – completely just botched a question in the middle of asking Ryan day, a question at a press conference in front of uh, the entire <laughs> everybody, and, which I had not done at all in my professional life. So that was, that was unnerving. Um, but actually my, my favorite one, I don't know if I told this story before, but I, so as you said earlier in this podcast, when I covered Purdue, I covered Purdue basketball as like my main beat. It was one year where I was the football beat writer, but, Traditionally, I was like back up on football. I would do a lot of game day stuff, but that was most most of my year was covering Purdue basketball day to day, the way I do football for Ohio State now. And I got a email from a radio station in I want to I think it was Lansing, and saying, "Hey, we're doing um, like an off season. Um, we're doing off season previews for all the big 10 teams. Can you come on and talk about Purdue? I'm like, sure. I'll come on and talk about Purdue. So the guy, it starts up and they like play the Purdue fight song or whatever, cause they're playing the fight song for every team. And the guy does his little intro and he's like, what, what can you tell us about the, the Boilermakers this year? And I went on like a three minute answer about Purdue basketball. And then the guy comes back, there's like a pause. He's like, those all sounded like basketball players. We're, we're here to talk about football with the season about to start. Oh, I think I forgot to mention this was like August. <laughs> this was all set up. And it like never entered my mind that they might be calling to talk about football instead of basketball. So then all of a sudden I had to be like, uh, oh, well, yeah, I kind of know about football too. Like I sort of cover the team. And then I, I think they let me answer like one question. And then we're just like, okay, thanks for joining us. And they just cut me off when it usually would go on for like, you know, five, 10 minutes at least. So, um, Fortunately, the only people who heard that were people who were listening to radio in Lansing at like 10.30 a.m. on a Tuesday in August. So that's pretty safe. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And that's, that's funny. I also would say that it's not fully embarrassing to me because the producer who was putting that together should have been more specific that they wanted to talk about football. Yeah. You but I should have used contacts clues to say uh, why would they be calling to talk to me about basketball in August. Yeah. Okay. So, I'll take uh, some of the blame. so I, I've gone over sort of like my professional writing snafus. We did that a couple of weeks ago on a podcast. Um, sort of the personal parts of, of being a journalist. Uh, this is not my story, but one of the times I was covering the Fiesta Bowl, uh, several of us got a house and did not stay at the hotel where the media hotel was. And we uh, were hanging out in the media room and playing poker. And the person I was with had, had a decent amount to drink. So I did not drink and I was driving us home. And he walked 
eye first into like a cactus tree at oh. one o'clock in the morning. And um, it was not embarrassing for me, but he hurt his eye. But it's what it was like, it wasn't a cactus, but it was like a, a tree in Arizona that has like really sharp, like cactus like needles on the tree branch. Eye first, right into the freaking ne- uh, stinking needle branch editor so that was one but my main two things i was very 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 clueless and young when i started covering um professional baseball uh i was 24 when i got that job and i covered that for four years so i was in a baseball locker room i'm like trying to find my way man i was chubby back then i looked like i was 14 years old we were looking at some old photos i am so much more handsome now than i used to be i've really grown into my body anyway i'm proud of you one, so I had a shirt. And this is how professional I was. I had a shirt that was a, this would surprise nobody. I had a Disney shirt that the design, it was like a, a golf shirt, but it said grumpy in tiny little letters. It was a blue shirt and it said grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. Like instead of being like a tan stripe, the stripe was the word grumpy. And I wore it. I wore it like in my wardrobe. It was one of my roads. It was like a golf shirt and I wore it to cover a game. And we were interviewing uh, Scott Rowland was the best player on the Phillies when I, when I covered them. And we were like in the middle of an interview, a group of us around him at his locker one day, and he stopped in the middle of the interview and said, what does your shirt say? Like he had just started, he had seen the pattern. And I said, oh, it says grumpy. Do you like it? And he said, No. And then he continued his answer. Um, but he was very nice to me. Scott Rowland was great in the media. So he was mostly just giving me crap. But that was uh, that was rough. Um, I had one one time. This is, I guess, not super embarrassing. But I, was, I, I covered a lot of different sports when I was in the Philadelphia area. I was at a Sixers game one time. And we were in the locker room. Shaq was on the visiting team. I can't remember which team it was. But Shaq grabbed my press pass and started trying to pronounce my last name. For like a minute, he was like, how do you say that name? Les Maurice. And it was like, we're going through. Shaq is just enamored with the French pronunciation of my name. That was interesting. Um, We have the story that I've told of when I went up to LeBron James at the Steph Curry NCAA basketball tournament game. And he said, if you work for the plane dealer, how come I don't know who you are? That was the first time I ever talked to LeBron James. But the most embarrassing probably is I was covering a Phillies game and I don't know what happened, but for some reason, the zipper on my pants popped open in the, in the locker room and like it would not shut. The zipper broke and like was a gaping hole in my pants. And a player was like, what is wrong with your pants? And he is the one who noticed that my zipper had exploded in the locker room. And I had to like wear like my jacket wrapped around my waist for the rest of the day. And uh, I think I said something to the player like, oh, I'm sure you're used to your zipper exploding. And then um, he he went on some (laughs) rant about, about players and what they do in their free time when they're on the road, when you're a millionaire. So um, I was just a 25-year-old kid bumbling my way for a, through a baseball locker room for three years. So that was my life on the beat. Um, but oh many. God. It just isn't interesting. It's like when I was Steven's age, it's like, how many embarrassing moments do you have, Doug? And I was like, I don't know, 30? And Steven is like, I have zero. I was like, I did something every day uh, that was a terribly embarrassing thing. But look at me now. Look at me now. I'm sweating. Gosh, I'm sweating. All right. That's it. 
20 questions. We made it through. Thanks to you guys for being part of that. Didn't you guys think those questions were good? There were some fantastic questions in there. Good variety. I will say I pulled out at least three questions from the group of tech subscribers uh, that are, I, I responded and said, these are too good. We cannot do this as a rapid fire podcast. This will be a whole podcast. Multiple questions along those lines. So uh, we, again, it's unbelievable. There's no football. I will tell you this. We're just going to we're going to hold off on a little bit of the big picture topics, because if for some reason the season is delayed or there is no season, then we'll have a lot of these big picture sort of state of the program topics lined up. We're doing these position group podcasts. We're going to lean in a little bit more on this team right now over the next month or so while we still assume that things are full speed ahead for a season. And then if we're sure there is a season that we can go, we can pull back big picture again, but I do want to hold off on some big picture stuff because if there aren't games to cover, then what we're going to have to talk about is the big picture of Ohio state football. So you guys make this thing run great questions. Appreciate all the listeners Thursday, Indiana preview with Zach Osterman of the Indy Star talking all about the next team on Ohio State's 2020 schedule, the Indiana Hoosiers Friday podcast. And we're going to send this question out to the texters. When will Ohio State take the all-time lead over Michigan in the Ohio State-Michigan series? Right now, if if I'm correct, Michigan is up by either six or seven games, and it depends whether you include the vacated 2010 Ohio State win, which we'll have to talk about a little bit. But when will Ohio State make up that gap and finally take the lead on the Wolverines, who jumped out to an early lead 100 years ago and have been holding on to that? That will be our Friday pod with great texter answers. But for now, we appreciate you guys listening to the Friday Buckeye Talk. On behalf of Nathan Baird and Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.